I swear that I'll never mess with the woods again. Written by Insomnia Storyteller Ben and I thought a vacation would be nice. After working endlessly upon our graduation from college, we had hoped to get away from it all. It was supposed to be a relaxing getaway in the woods, one during which we could drink, laugh, and just enjoy being alone together. Living with our respective parents wasn't the easiest, but we made it work in hopes of accumulating enough savings to buy a home of our own. That's why we decided to go camping. A decision I would soon regret more than any other stupid choice I had made in my 22 years of life. Finding a campground that was open during October in New England was harder than one could imagine, and we wound up having to drive nearly four hours from our hometown to the site. For your sake, I won't tell you exactly where we were, but just know it was near some rather famous northern mountains. The campground we chose advertised that it had 100 acres of wood surrounding it, and in the light of a day when we had booked it, that seemed like a fantastic feature. We wanted to be enclosed by trees, having all the privacy in the world to engage in, whatever sort of activities we desired. Between both of our parents' garages, we were able to scrounge up enough camping supplies to avoid purchasing the necessities. We grabbed a tent from my parents, some propane stoves and chairs from Ben's, along with other miscellaneous things. I won't bore you with the details of the ride, setup, or really any of the other mundane first few days, as the eventful part of our trip began three days after our arrival. We had decided, after many days of sleeping in, watching movies and drinking, that we should probably actually do something mildly outdoorsy. You may laugh, but the hike we embarked on was worse for our health than any bottle of wine we drank, or a package of Oreos that we ate. There was a trailhead we had seen at the back of the campground, somewhat hidden by a dead bush and a trash can. We pushed those aside to reveal a beaten down path with red markers scattered along the sides. It most definitely was a trail, although it may have not been used in a bit. Shrugging, we exchanged a glance that said, may as well try it, and stepped over the twigs and branches that were the only thing between us and our mistake. I complained a few times on the way up, but Ben loved the trail. It was a constant uphill track, with a river running alongside us. Every now and then, we would stop and take in the view beside us. There were small patches of trampled vegetation where previous nature enthusiasts had tread before us, and we used every one to catch our breath. It's not that we were out of shape per se, but rather that... We were not used to these kinds of activities. Nothing in our town compared to this. And being the novices we were, we had failed to pack water or any other provisions aside from our cell phones, rendered useless with the lack of service, and a cheap multi-tool that I picked up from Walmart. After what felt like hours, but probably was only 45 minutes, we reached an impasse where the water rushed over the trail. We couldn't tell if it continued, but neither of us really wanted to go any further. It was at this point we sat on a log and caught our breath. 
Claire, did you bring any water? Ben asked me, gesturing that he had nothing. No, I didn't think we would need it. I guess you didn't either. We chuckled a bit at our stupidity. Ben looked at me and then glanced at the water before us. It was a crystal clear, and I hadn't given it much thought until I realized that we probably could drink it. Water like this is safe. I read that somewhere. Or maybe I heard it. You know, I don't read much. Either way, when it moves this fast, I guess bacteria can't grow in it. Plus, it's cold. And it's probably a mountain runoff. I would risk it. I'm freaking thirsty. I don't know, Ben. It looks fine, but you never know. What if there's some kind of chemical runoff, too? What? From all the chemical plants on top of the mountain? Plus, animals around here must drink something. They probably drink this, and they're fine. I nodded in agreement. I couldn't really argue with him, and besides, I was thirsty. You're right, it can't hurt. It's natural after all. Caveman did it. I rationalized. I stepped forward before Ben did and reached my hands out, balancing precariously on the moss-covered rocks. Hey, be careful. Ben warned, reaching out to grab my waist as I leaned closer to the rushing water. If you fall then there's no way I can get you out, not in time. You'll probably bash your head in or worse, ruin your pretty face. I could hear the smirk I knew was spreading across his mouth. Then you would have to leave me, wouldn't you? I said grinning. I've got this. I reached my cup hands out, relying on my arms to hold me steady. The cold water rushed into them, and I pulled my arms back and then my hands up to my lips, taking in the sweet water. It felt good as it ran down my throat, and a bit dripped down my chin, removing any sweat that had accumulated during our walk. I did this a few more times before saying, Okay, your turn, and having them let me down. Ben was taller than I and required less help reaching the water. After we both quenched our thirst, we sat down for a few more minutes before deciding to head back. It would probably be a half hour or so before we reached camp, and the light was already fading around us. We would be back before dark, but only if we got to move on soon. The trek down the trail was unremarkable, and much easier than the climb up. Ben and I joked around, chatted, and generally just enjoyed each other's company. Upon arriving back at our campsite, I grabbed my towel to go shower while Ben started up a fire to cook dinner. I walked down to the bathhouse, toting my toiletry bag, fresh clothing, my phone, and some quarters for the water. I opened the door, locking it behind me. There was no one else here, meaning anyone who did come in would probably have bad intentions. I most certainly didn't need that. I chose the stall furthest from the door just in case, and closed the curtain in the small dressing area before taking off my dirty clothes. I threw a few quarters in the shower, hearing them clank at the bottom of the metal basket of the machine, and pressed the start button. The warm water felt nice on my body. It was a different kind of refreshing when compared to the water that we had drank earlier. I felt the sweat leaving my pores, and began shampooing before I heard it. Someone was walking around the bathhouse. 
pacing in the space between the toilet stalls and shower curtains. I froze in panic, hoping to be as soundless as possible, but knowing the flowing water head above me was betraying me. The pacing quickened, back and forth, up and down the aisle in front of me. I heard it come close, as if whoever owned those feet were standing right outside my curtain. Against my better judgment, I crouched to look in the gap between the curtain and the ground. Nothing. I sighed, figuring that it must all be in my head and continued showering. Paranoia has a way of doing that to someone, I rationed, and being alone and naked in an unfamiliar place would definitely be enough to make me paranoid. The rest of my shower finished without a vent, and I dried off before dressing myself in some sweats and a hoodie that I had stolen from Ben before making my way back to our site. Upon my arrival, I saw Ben rushing around the site, flashlight in hand, shining it around every tree. What are you doing, Ben? I asked, wondering if he had dropped something or even better, managed to find our food stolen by a squirrel. I... I heard something, Claire. I thought it might be you trying to trick me, but I don't think so. It was in the trees, pacing back and forth. Stop, you're scaring me. I'm not trying to, but I'm scared. I don't know what it was. I didn't see anything. Ben's eyes were wild. I knew he wasn't lying, and I felt my heart drop. Ben, how long ago did you hear this? Is it still here? I asked, try not to let my voice shake. No, no, it left probably 10, maybe 15 minutes ago. But the thing is, I didn't hear it leave. Whoever it is has to still be around, and there's no way I'm letting my guard down without finding it. I didn't want to tell him, but I knew I had to. Ben, I heard it too, but not here, in the bathroom. I was showering and someone was pacing around. There was no one in there, and I had locked the door. And you're not messing with me. I could hear the panic in his voice rising. I shook my head, grabbing our second flashlight and joining the surge. After half an hour, we determined that whoever made the noise was not there. Cautiously, we resumed starting the fire Ben had abandoned and cooked our dinner. Neither of us felt really comfortable but there really wasn't anything we could do. We were in the woods and the woods made noises. As we were about to settle into bed, I felt my stomach churn. It wasn't in the way it did when I ate too much ice cream, or the one time I had food poisoning. I don't know how to explain it, but it felt like someone was literally stirring the contents of my stomach around with a great speed. I looked up at Ben. Babe, I don't feel so good. He turned to me, his face pale. Me neither. My stomach, it feels. He didn't even get to finish his sentence as nausea overtook both of us and we vomited all over the dirt beneath our feet. Just when we thought it had stopped, we both started again. After a few rounds of this, we were finally able to catch our breath. Shakily, we stood up and went to the bathroom to brush our teeth. I made Ben let me into the men's room with him. There was no way I was going into the bathroom alone again. We settled into our sleeping bags, opting to share one without so much as a second thought. Neither of us wanted to be alone. 
I had just felt sleep come over me when I was awakened by a shuffling noise, probably a few feet from our tent wall. I reached over to shake Ben awake, but noticed he was already. You hear it too, don't you? He whispered. I had never seen him so scared. I nodded, too afraid to speak. Cautiously, he sat up, reaching over for the axe that we used to chop wood. I pulled his arm, hoping it would convey to him my desire for him not to leave. He shook it off, whispering, Either come with me or stay put. I opted for the first one, but only because I didn't think I could stand being alone. Cautiously, we unzipped the tent, trying to make as little sound as possible. I poked my head out first, wanting to take in my surroundings. I saw nothing and motioned for Ben to do the same. He too saw nothing, and perhaps stupidly, we stepped outside. Armed with a wood chopping axe and the biggest stick I could find nearby, we walked together around the tent. I gripped the back of Ben's shirt tightly in my free hand, too afraid to let go. He shone the flashlight everywhere, just as he had before, and just like me before, we saw nothing. As we had resolved that, it must have been a squirrel or maybe a skunk, and began heading back into the tent. I heard the distinct sound of footsteps behind me. I froze and Ben did too. Almost like something out of a movie, we turned around to face whatever it was behind us. At first, we saw nothing again. The woods before us were dark and nothing seemed amiss. And then, to our utter horror, as Ben raised the flashlight... Three pairs of eyes reflected light back at us. They were poking around the tree, peering at us through gaps and branches. They were too large to be squirrels, but too high up to be any kind of deer or even moose. Ben and I stood frozen in our tracks as the eyes began to move. Slowly, they got closer to us. Several figures emerged, probably eight or ten feet tall. They were definitely shaped like humans. I knew they weren't human, not only by their height, but by the way they absorbed the light we shone on them. The woods behind them were dark, but they were darker. It was as if every single wave of light went into them, only growing at the darkness within. The only way we could see them was by their eyes, shiny orbs moving ever closer to us. The car was too far away for us to get in, and besides, the keys were in the tent. Like children, Ben and I dove into the tent, zipping it up rapidly and burying ourselves in our sleeping bag. Maybe, if we showed no skin, those things would just go away like you do as a child. You hope if you're covered by a blanket, the monster will not find you. We stayed there, huddled together in that small sleeping bag as we heard the shuffling surround our tent. I began to cry soundlessly, and Ben could do nothing besides hold me close. I don't know how, but by some miracle we made it through the night. At the first sign of daylight, we crept out, making our way to the door. We exited and saw nothing amiss. The ground didn't even look like anything had been walking around last night, and the big stick I could have sworn I grabbed was still in the pile of our firewood. Ben and I exchanged a look that conveyed our confusion. After a moment, I was the first to speak. Was that... was it even real? 
the those those things ben stuttered i could see he was trembling yeah you saw them right how could i not ben it looks like they were never here that stick right there i grabbed it last night i remember i swear i did and your flashlight you dropped it on the way in but but it's next to your bed i don't know what happened but we both remember it i don't want to ask you but can you can you tell me what you saw he transcribed in vivid detail the exact same thing i saw last night down to the eyes and the bodies and the shuffling being two feet from our bed we tried to figure out what could have possibly happened that led both of us to the same delusion but could not figure it out that was until i remembered the one thing we did out of the norm remember we got really sick right before bed what if what if we had something weird in our systems like we drank that water ben we could have gotten sick from it i don't know it wouldn't really explain how we had these same hallucinations but it would explain the weirdness of yesterday ben agreed that maybe there was something in the water while it didn't make a whole lot of sense we clung to that idea as we got in the car to go to the nearest urgent care we had agreed not to tell the doctor the full story but rather to say we had hallucinated a few times leaving out the shared part we were seen fairly quickly and upon explaining our shared symptoms the doctor agreed that we had foolishly consumed unsafe water we peed in cops ran some blood tests and were told to wait they wanted to make sure further care wasn't needed was what we were told but the place looked deserted to me they probably wanted something to do and having us there was no real burden feeling safe there we decided to stay in short the doctor told us that all of the tests came back negative there were no foreign bodies in our blood we hadn't consumed any tapeworms we really had nothing wrong with us we were told not to drink any strange water but that our symptoms were more likely to have been caused by food poisoning than anything he told us that if we did happen to hike the same trail again we could bring in some of the water for testing but in reality that wouldn't do much they would be happy to alleviate our fears though and we were released shortly after despite the damper on our vacation we decided to stay if that was the worst of it and if there was nothing really wrong with us tonight should be a breeze it was about three o'clock when i had the bright idea to hike back up that trail ben was hesitant but i persuaded him arguing that we could get some of the water to get it tested and it would tire us out and probably help us sleep better soon he gave in and we were off this time with one full water bottle and one empty to collect a sample the trailhead looked much the same as when we had found it blocked off and marked although the branches where we had created an entrance were trampled from our footfalls the climb up seemed almost worse this time i thought the river followed us the whole way up but even after 15 minutes we still didn't hear the faintest trickle of water another 15 passed before i asked ben shouldn't we have found it by now found what the water didn't we stop over there to look at it i pointed to a small path leading to our right gosh i thought i was crazy but i guess not we definitely should have passed it by now 
We trekked on, figuring that the water would be there eventually. It was when it began to get dark that I knew we were in trouble. The light had faded around us, but in the shade of the trees, we hadn't noticed a dramatic shift. We had planned to be out maybe two hours round trip, but when I checked my watch, I realized that we had been climbing up for that amount of time. We should have hit the river by now, but we hadn't. We hadn't found any water at all, not even a puddle. I was about to point this out to Ben when we heard the leaves begin to rustle around us. I grabbed his arms tighter than I ever thought possible and could feel him shaking too. I wasn't imagining it. The footfalls grew closer as our eyes met, and we spun on our heels, peeling out of the woods as fast as we could. I fell a few times on rocks and roots, Ben turning to help me up before we ran again. If the trip was in two hours, and this must have been half that, I had never moved so fast in my life. The whole time, I heard these shuffling around us. It wasn't fast, in fact. It felt very calm and well-paced. Somehow, these things were keeping up with us even as we ran as fast as we could. I didn't bother to rationalize it. I just kept running. We burst through the trailhead, but we didn't stop there. Sprinting, we raced back to our car as if our lives depended on it. If you ask me, they most certainly did. Ben grabbed the keys out of the tent as I opened the doors. Neither of us bothered to pack up. Neither of us cared. We tore out of the campground faster than we should have been able to on those rocky dirt roads. Once on the road, we didn't stop until we reached a rest stop far from any trees or woods. Neither of us wanted to get out, but we had to. We needed gas and we needed to collect ourselves. I noticed Ben kept looking around, jumping when he saw my shadow, or even his own. Eventually, we decided we had to stop at a hotel for the night. We were in no condition to drive and a hotel full of people felt safe enough. I doubted either of us would sleep, but we both found comfort in knowing we were not alone in the woods anymore. I can't stop thinking about the water and how it was gone. I don't know if we upset some ancient spirit by drinking it, or if we got some unknown disease. All I know is that I won't be messing with the woods ever again, if I ever make it out of this hotel room. Ben is in the shower as I type this. I don't know if he hears it, but I do. They followed us here. I can hear these shuffling outside the door. I want to call the front desk, but my guess is they won't see them. And if they can, I don't want them to have to. I have the chain locked, the latch done, and have even pushed the desk against the door, but I know they won't leave. They're patient. They'll wait for us. I'm an elite zombie hunter. This was the worst day of my life since the apocalypse. Written by Jordan Group. At first, when the dead began to rise, there was a panic. Mayhem. Everything we had seen in movies and television. It all came to pass. All governments were wiped out. Every world leader killed and reanimated. 
The systems and structures that we had all come to rely on was revealed for the thin and fragile glass tower that it was, and it shattered into a million pieces and collapsed. It was a total anarchy, at least for a little while. Small groups of survivors such as myself roamed the countryside for months, looking for shelter, setting up camps. That was how it started in the beginning. Hunter-gatherer types. We traveled around trying to find a place to call home for a little while. Until the hordes of zombies began to form and cluster together, wiping out everything in their path. And then we would move on. But after a while, structures began to form. Systems. Organization from the chaos. Evenness from the entropy. I was within that elite group of disciplined warrior survivors from the very beginning. Those of us who decided to make change for the better, and to set up something to replace the nothing that currently existed. That was how Igor was formed. International Ghoul Hunters, Operation Roundtable. By that point, we had a few pilots who would take us around and bring us together for face-to-face -face meetings when we had to. We had also managed to set up a rudimentary internet again, that we could all use for the purposes of communication. It wasn't anywhere near as good as the original, of course. More akin to a BBS platform from the 1990s. But it was something. The Roundtable, as we called it at first, was a loose organization of leaders from various nations who wanted to work collaboratively together to bring the world back to normal and to deal with the superiors. These superiors were what we called the zombies who had started to evolve. They terrified all of us more than anything we had ever seen, and we knew if we didn't take them out, they would destroy us all. Every bit of progress we had made would be undone. Of course, every round table needs an author, and we had one. Perhaps that was the reason why we named the organization what we did. I honestly don't remember, but it was he who brought us all together. Who knows if that was his real name or not, but it was all I never knew him as. Of course, he was a British to boot. I'm Canadian myself. We had Americans as well. Germans, French, Brazilians, Koreans, Australians, South Africans, and representatives from a dozen other countries. It was a big table. Arthur had agents planted all over the world, and I was one of them. We rooted out the Supremes and reported back to him with our findings. Then, he would send backup as necessary to take them out before they could build too big of an army. Oh yeah, did I mention, these Supremes could telekinetically control entire hordes of zombies, because that's the whole problem with them. You can't have people like that around in the zombie apocalypse. You just can't. It's not a good idea to let folks like that hang around. They're nothing but trouble. The guy I'm about to tell you about was no exception. It was a typical reconnaissance mission at first. We were in the downtown core of Toronto. The burnt out husks of towering buildings all around us. The city of a couple million people was a hollow shell of its former self. No one would dare go into the city at the beginning, but now it was a different story. 
The undead ghouls who had taken over were few and far between after years of hard times. Man, we could take care of them handedly. At least so we thought. Want to check out the old Rogers Center? Someone asked. I think it might have been Cassie. Or then again, it could have been Stella. It doesn't matter. It was at no one's fault. Sure, I said. If it had been a busier day, I would have said no. I was the leader after all. But it was quiet. We had barely run into any undead since that morning. It was like they were all hiding out there somewhere. I miss going to see the Blue Jays, even if they never did win another one without Joe Carter. We walked up the long staircase off of Front Street, making our way towards the stadium. I had an image in my mind of going out onto the field, picking up a bat and hitting a ball with it. I imagined it sailing into the outfield, a major league home run. Usually I was so mission focused, but I was goofing off that day. Maybe I was just tired of the grind. I think maybe it was something else too though. The glass doors were all smashed out, making it easy to get inside. There were a couple zombies milling around the foyer, and we made quick work of them. Cassie drove her katana blade through an eyeball. Frank caved in a skull with a sledgehammer. Tom stood back, watching out for an unexpected ambush, ready to intervene with its crossbow if necessary. These security gates had been destroyed by looters and we slipped past them easily. We made our way towards the playing field and I was overwhelmed by nostalgia. Memories of going to see baseball games with my wife, my family, my friends. It all came flooding back. My knees buckled from the emotion of it all. They were dead. Every last one of them. I would never see any of them again. I would never watch another baseball game. There would be no more picnics, beach outings, or family dinners for any of us. What was the point of it all? My team must have sensed my sudden melancholy because they stopped with me and actually said a few sympathetic words. Hey man, you okay? Frank said. Give him a minute, he's dealing with something. We've all got stuff from our past that comes back sometimes. I shook my head, trying to get rid of the thoughts. It wasn't easy. Let's go play some ball. I said, trying to smile and feeling it stretch fake across my face, like a too thin coat of paint attempting to conceal the worn and splintering facade. Frank wasn't buying it, but was nice enough not to say anything. He put his meaty arm around me and the five of us went down the aisle towards the playing field. Tom was quiet as usual, keeping an eye out behind us for anyone looking to sneak up on us. Surprisingly enough, the dugout still contained a few baseball bats and balls, even a couple of gloves. It looked like the players had cleared out in a hurry and no one had come back since. We went out onto the field, taking our impromptu positions, and I saw the nervous looks on everyone's faces. It had been so quiet lately, but we knew how fast things could change. Still, we thought we could handle anything. Frank threw a pitch at the strike zone. It was a lob and I managed to give it a good crack on the first swing. The ball went sailing into the air and towards left field. Cassie ran for it and grabbed it, 
throwing it back into the infield. Stella was playing catcher behind home plate. While Tom stood off to the side of the field in the stands, looking around, waiting for trouble. Come on, Tom, I yelled. It's no fun without another batter. If you come down, you can take a swing next. I thought he would say no. Tom was always the one who stayed off to the side while the rest of us had these brief moments of fun. The stoic guy never wanted any part of it. But he surprised me and he came down to the field, actually grinning for once. I handed him the bat and he stood at the plate, waiting for the next pitch. The huge empty Major League Baseball stadium was hauntingly quiet, our every movement echoing across the vast space around us. Frank threw the ball a couple more times before Tom managed to get hit. The ball went far into center field, and Cassie went running for it. Tom made a dash for first base and then for second. Frank was out there yelling for Cassie to throw it into him at second, saying that they would get him out there. And that was when I saw them. I was speechless for a minute, and the ball almost hit me in the head when someone threw it into home plate after an error. They had all been focused on the play and didn't see what was happening all around us. At all of the entrances, all around the field, undead were filtering in like patrons just before a big game was about to start. They were coming down the aisles towards us from every direction. It took a minute for the others to notice. I was too dumbstruck to say anything. Our game stopped entirely when they saw me looking and noticed our dilemma. Everyone dropped their baseball mitts and ran for the weapons, but we knew it was hopeless. We knew that we were doomed. There was clearly a superior here, in the stadium with us. He was commanding the undead that were surrounding us on all sides. That was the only way they could be so organized. They wandered onto the field lazily without haste, only revealing their surprising hunger as they came close enough to smell our warmth and our sweat. And then they appeared suddenly ravenous, opening their mouths wide and snapping at us with unnatural speed. The ghouls went after poor Frank the worst. He was a huge man about six foot ten. The superior probably saw him and commanded them to go after him first. He swung a sledgehammer around in a giant arc, obliterating several zombies' heads with one fell swoop. But there was a wolf among them. Wolves are what we call the fast ones, the ones who act slow at first but then attack with stunning speed and ingenuity. They're not superiors, but they're close. Ever hear the expression, like a wolf in sheep's clothing? That's why we call them that, because you think they're normal ghouls, but then they surprise you and tear your throat out with their bare hands. The wolf jumped on Frank while his back was turned, swinging his hammer in a great arc around him. He landed on his back and began to tear at the muscles of his neck, ripping them apart while he screamed. As I was distracted by that, four zombies surrounded me and I had to sidestep quickly to prevent myself from getting devoured. I quickly swung the black bat I was carrying and caught one upside the head, causing him to stagger backwards. He regained his balance almost instantly and came towards me again. While I momentarily focused on that, the other three came at me, as well as six more. We were quickly becoming outnumbered, and hundreds more were swarming in by the second. They were storming the field like an angry mob, 
Only this mob was intent on eating our flesh. The smell of them all was horrifying, and the terror that I felt overwhelming. All I could see was rotten faces all around me, black teeth and eyeballs oozing pus. Their skin was gray and decaying, with gaps and tears showing exposed muscle and bone beneath. And the noise of them all, moaning and gurgling while they attacked us with a complete lack of emotion or self-awareness. I saw Cassie go down, and her sword went flying into the air and landed near me. Hurrying over to it, I picked it up off the ground. Knowing how much it meant to her, I wanted to keep it safe, even if it was only as a tribute to her. Her terrified and desperate screams rang out hollow across the field. That was when I vowed that I would get out of here one way or another. The wolf zombie came running towards me and launched itself into the air. I drove the sword point into its eye as he did, and the momentum carried his head right through the steel, destroying his brain. At that moment I realized all of my friends were dead. The horde was zeroing in on me, with no one else to focus their efforts on. Big Frank the Tank stood tall among them, his eyes now red and full of hunger and hate. Cassie stood up next and stalked towards me, joining the crowd of undead as they approached. They attacked me without mercy, my friends and foes alike, as if we had never known each other. I fought like I had never fought before, and let me tell you, I am known for my ability to get out of situations even as completely messed up as this one was. I slashed off zombies' faces with a katana, cutting heads off while spinning like a dervish and somersaulting through the air. I parried and thrusted, hacked and slashed, dove through legs and climbed atop the crowd's shoulders, severing heads and bouncing upon the ones that stood there, jam-packed together, using them as planks to springboard to and fro while I did my dirty work. Necrotic hands grasping at my legs all the while, tearing long and ragged gashes from my flash, breaking off fingernails that remained lodged inside of me. Eventually, the pile of corpses was staggeringly high. It filled the baseball field almost, but even I had my limits. My arms were filled with blood, heavy and clumsy, after hours of defending myself from a never-ending onslaught of undead. One of them was cunning and quick, a wolf probably, I thought that I had them all beat, but he grabbed me and took me down. And that was it. I was finished. I assumed as the crowd of those remaining came to me, and descended upon me with salivating mouths and hungry eyes, their teeth bared and hands outstretched like greedy infants reaching for a teat. But the superior had other plans. He floated in through the air descending among the crowd of them just as they were about to consume my flesh. You, I will keep you alive, he said. You are strong, and I like strong people by my side. I will keep you as my scribe. You will write what will become the new history books, telling of my conquests, making it known for generations after that it was I who created this new world. Uh, thanks? I wasn't really happy with the new arrangement he was imposing. But then again, I wasn't really in a position to argue. Does that mean they aren't going to eat my brains? Precisely. 
We can't have the new scribe stumbling around, drooling all over the scrolls as he writes the history books, can we? I was very relieved. He noticed that and made a little tisk noise. No, I didn't mean for you to get too excited. I said they can't eat your brains. I didn't say about the rest of you. The undead looked at me with hungry eyes once again, now having obtained permission to enjoy a meal, albeit with a limited menu. Only his lower extremities, please. We'll need those hands of his to write with. We wouldn't want that juicy brain to go to waste, now would we? The pack of them closest to me began to pull strips of flesh off my body with their bare hands as I screamed. They drooled and slobbered as they feasted on my legs and feet, until there was nothing left of them. The pain was unimaginable. The suffering. Well, it's pointless to talk about now. I have a new kind of suffering to deal with at this point in my life. Now I get to write about the new world as it is created. A horror playland for a demented psychopath who enjoys nothing more than torment and suffering. He controls them all now. The whole lot of them. I get dragged around like his publicist, putting out press releases that nobody can read but me and him. And I'm starting to get the feeling he's practically illiterate. I sure hope Igor is still out there somewhere. If not, I'm really in trouble. I once witnessed something so terrifying at 35,000 feet that I swore off flying forever. Written by Mandrick I hate flying. Despise it with a burning passion. And why wouldn't I? What's to like about being trapped in a flimsy metal structure that rattles and threatens to fall apart at these seams every time it encounters a sudden gust of wind? A teeny tiny bird could get sucked into its engines, and this hulky monstrosity would immediately crash and explode into a ball of fire. One second, one error, one slight miscalculation. That's all it would take for your entire existence to be reduced to a simple statistic. Lost at sea. Flight recorder not found. Search is still on. I do not want my name to be associated with these sentences. No thanks. Gonna call me a baby for having a perfectly rational fear. Well, that's just fine and dandy with me. Now this fear isn't the only thing I loathe about flying. It's everything else too. Crammed seats with no leg space. Crying babies. Surly toddlers kicking me back in my seat. Stale air limp with the stench of sweaty socks and warm liquor. The loud conversations of drunk, middle-aged assholes. God, I hate it. Fade truly has a cruel, cruel sense of irony that I got saddled with a job that involves so much flying. If the pay wasn't so good, I swear I would have quit a long time ago. But even money only goes so far because no amount of zeros in my paycheck can convince me to get back inside an aeroplane after what I saw that night. My experience on that flight struck me with such life-changing terror that I quit my job the second that dang plane landed. 
and promised myself that I would never, ever fly again. Ever. It was another one of those cheap red-eye flights that I like to catch after my business trips. I marginally preferred traveling at night. Granted, that the noise situation wasn't all that better. Loud snores that sounded like the sputtering of dying trucks replaced petulant shrieks of little brats. But at least, I didn't have to look out at the sea of swollen clouds floating beneath the plane like a thick white mist, reminding me of just how far away I was from solid ground. I was curled up under a musty blanket, having a fitful sleep full of nightmares of the fuel's lodge being torn apart, with my chair and I being sucked out into the air in the blink of an eye. And that's when the plane hit a particularly nasty turbulence. The tremors woke me with a jolt, sent my heart racing. I dug my fingers into the armrests, pressed my lips together and squeezed my eyes shut, only blinking them open when the rattling had passed. I let out a deep breath as my eyes wandered. God, but the old woman next to me just slept through the whole thing. I felt so envious of her open-mouthed snores. This jealousy would only get magnified when I would later look back on what happened next. I turned my neck, looked out the window. Seated near the middle of the plane, I could clearly see the wing outside. It was lit up by wing scan lights and had a couple of strobe lights flashing beneath it near its tip. Standard stuff. Satisfied that nothing seemed to be wrong, I began to tear my gaze off the view outside and froze. There was something there. Startled, I leaned forward, pressed my face up against the glass and narrowed my eyes. Cold sweat trickled down the back of my neck when I saw it again. A dark sheet of cloth, tattered, frayed, fluttering from the edge of the wing like it had gotten caught on something there. What the heck? How did that get there? How come no one had noticed? And how in the world had it managed to stay up there for so long? No sooner had that thought crossed my mind did that rag disappear. Slithered off the edge and vanished into the velvety sky. My heart pounded in my chest as I waited for the cloth to fly off into the engine, setting it ablaze. But nothing happened. I could feel the tension releasing from my body in waves, making me shiver. Whatever that was, it was gone, and it posed no threat to my safety anymore. I decided to wait until next morning to inform the flight attendants about what I just saw and began slumping back into the chair. And then I saw it again out of the corner of my eye. It was closer this time, about halfway down the length of the wing, just fluttering against the roaring wind, right at the edge. I rubbed my eyes, pinched my arm. No, I wasn't dreaming. It really was there. How did it travel halfway up the wing? Shouldn't that be impossible? 
My head swam as I saw something breaking all laws of physics that had been the cornerstones of my perception and understanding of reality. But of course, that was just the beginning of this horrendous nightmare. For right the next second, something shot out from within the waving folds of the black cloth and latched onto the top side of the wing. It was so bizarre, so impossible that it took me a second to recognize it. It was a human arm. I gasped, loudly I think because I didn't notice it. The only thing I could hear at that time was the muscle-tearing beat of my heart against my sternum. Was that a person there? My question was immediately answered as another arm shot up and landed on the top of the wing. My tongue darted out of my mouth, licked my cracked lips as I wondered, how in the ever-loving heck was this person maintaining their grip on the smooth surface of a plane that was shooting through the air 35,000 feet above the ground? I watched the veins on the two thin arms get stretched to the point of snapping as the entire body got gradually pulled up. A head popped up, small, round, with long dark hair spilling all over the face, trying to tear themselves off their scalp and fly off to the side. It was a woman. She had thick, blood-red lips framing a mouth that was opening and closing. Opening and closing. Fast. So fast that it was pretty much a blur. Was she speaking? No. The movement was too fast. Too rhythmic for that. She pulled her torso up, then her legs, until she was lying flat on the wing. Her mouth never stopped moving, even as her matted locks flew into it and crushed between her teeth. And her eyes. Dear God, her eyes. Full of rage. Every blood vessel in them had popped. I was terrified and confused. Did she need my help? Or was I in danger? The sight was making my brain short circuit. And then she moved towards me like a lizard. A really freaking fast lizard. One whose mouth never stopped its bizarre motion. Within seconds, she was on me. Stood up outside my window. Pressed her face up against the glass. Hair lashing around wildly. And that's when I heard it, and finally understood what she was doing with her mouth. It was her teeth. They were chattering. I don't know how, but I was able to hear the sound of her teeth gnashing repeatedly, rhythmically. A sob escaped my throat as I shut my eyes and reached overhead for the emergency call button. No way was I going to watch this stuff for even a second more. I needed it to end. My finger kept jabbing the button, not stopping even when the chattering seemed to have ended. Sir, are you okay? I jumped. My heart nearly gave out at the sound of that voice. With extreme caution, I opened my eyes and saw a flight attendant leaning over me with a look of concern on her face. Is everything alright? She asked again. 
Yes, I exclaimed. There's a woman outside. Outside? She asked, disbelief clear in her voice. Yes, I said. Right there. I pointed out the window and felt my stomach sink when I realized that no one was there. I leaned against the glass, turned my neck around, but there was absolutely no sign of her. She had vanished, and it didn't surprise me. Sir, are you sure you're okay? Are you in need of medical assistance? I shook my head, forcefully. No, it's fine. Just had a very vivid nightmare. I apologize for disturbing you. She smiled. It's okay. Please don't hesitate to call if you need help. Thank you. As she walked away, I rested my head on the seats inside. What had I just seen? Was it a nightmare? A hallucination? Must have been. There was no other rational explanation. Couldn't be. I glanced at the old woman seated next to me. She was still snoring. Slept right through everything. Yeah, a nightmare. I mused and turned off the light overhead, plunging the cabin into darkness once again. Little did I know that the worst was yet to come. I was snuggled under the sweat-soaked blanket and my nerves had just begun to settle when I heard it again. It started off low, distant, like it was coming from the top of a cliff far away. But it got louder. The chattering of teeth. Like the noise an angry rattlesnake makes, but much more metallic and predatory. I sat up straight. Tense shoulders, eyes wide. I listened closely, trying to trace the source of that sound. It sounded like she was inside the cabin. I tried to swallow whatever spit was left in my mouth but the lump in my throat refused to allow that to happen. No, it was the same last time. It sounded like she was in the cabin then too, but she had been outside. I whipped my neck around, scanned the cabin as much as my eyes and my position would allow. There was no sign of her, but of course there wasn't. She had been lying down on the wing when she first started moving towards me. Just then, almost as if she could hear what I was thinking, I felt a hand on my leg. My mouth dropped open. I tried to scream, but I was so scared no sound came out. A pale white hand was gripping my shin, tightly, twisting my leg muscles and making my very bones ache. And then another hand on the other leg this time. The vice-like grip on my legs had tightened forcing them apart. And that's when I saw her. Sliding out from under the seat in front of me, she began climbing up. On me. Her teeth continued to chatter maddeningly. Finally, finding my strength, I let out a scream so piercing it woke up everyone in the cabin. And that woman slithered off somehow disappearing under the very same seat she had crawled out of, like water swirling down an unclogged drain. Lights began to get switched off one by one, and slowly, 
Scared whispers and grumbling filled the cabin. I stayed awake the rest of the night. I had to apologize profusely to the flight attendants and my fellow passengers. I told them that I wasn't well, that the stress was getting to me, but I wouldn't be troubling them anymore. Someone a couple of rows back even offered me a pill for my anxiety. I declined and sat on an empty seat near the flight attendants, scared out of my woods but not letting it show. By this time, I had already made my decision to never get on a plane ever again. But something else happened. One last chapter of this nightmare that cemented my decision. Morning had come. The flight had landed. The passengers were getting off one by one. I was last. I wanted to take my time and apologize too, and thank the flight attendants for all their help. The one I spoke to was the same one who had come to my help the previous night. She smiled as I stammered through my groveling apology and told me that it was okay and that I need to take better care of myself. I smiled and began walking off. Chills racked my spine. A sound. That sound. I turned around and saw the flight attendant staring at me with wide, dead eyes. Her mouth was moving. There's a private airline that hosts horror events only on a full moon. I was on board. Written by Kyle Harrison. Last year, Bloody Disgusting gave it four out of five screams. Fangoria touted it as the most original haunted house concept on the market. But you shouldn't believe the reviews. No, really don't. Full Moon Flights is not what it seems. According to the brochure, they are a modern haunted house for fans of fear, a departure from the ordinary and a journey into the unknown where nightmares are inescapable. We don't allow guests to book flights. Instead, we let those who have the courage and curiosity to come find us, the blurb read. Everything about it screamed a publicity stunt to me. A private jetliner filled with costumed actors and jump scares designed to give people an adrenaline rush all night long. The latest event was this Halloween near me, and since I couldn't think of a better way to spend the evening, I decided to take a drive out to the provided coordinates where the plane was said to land. The departure time was scheduled for precisely 12.01am, so I got there early, intent on documenting each and every aspect of the experience. Besides myself, there were about six other cars parked at an old airstrip, a fitting place for the spooky flight to land. I thought as I looked about the dilapidated buildings. No one had used this place in a very long time, if ever. I grabbed my cell and small backpack filled with emergency supplies and gear, everything that I thought I would need for the night. But then from the looks of some of the other patrons' gear, it seemed I was the one underprepared. First time, a woman wearing a Freddy Krueger shirt asked as she offered me a small capsule. Yeah, what's this for? I asked. Helps keep your head in the game, for a little while anyway. She said as she stared up at the sky. 
Guess they want to be fashionably late, like usual. How many times have you been a passenger? I asked. I remembered reading that some claimed the event had staff hidden among the guests to try and boost interest, so everything she told me I took with a grain of salt at first. Five times, maybe six. It's a heck of a ride, I'll tell you what. She answered as she extended her hand and added, I'm Isabella. It's nice to meet you. Max, and same here. When are they supposed to arrive? I asked, noticing the other passengers were getting antsy. I couldn't see any signs of a plane in the sky, and wondered what sort of showy entrance the proprietors had in mind to dazzle us. Don't know. These things are unpredictable. She lit a smoke and I wandered toward the other passengers. She tried to sell you one of the pills too, huh? A man asked as I looked down at my palm where the red and white tablet was at. Is it some kind of hallucinogenic? I whispered. I don't know, mate, but I personally wouldn't risk it. This night is probably going to be as crazy enough as it is, he told me. You came all the way from around the world just for this, I asked. He didn't respond, but his eyes showed a story of pain and heartache. He was searching for something, but wouldn't dare disclose what. The others were not as fascinating. Two twins from Manchester were here for a birthday present to each other, and a couple of young reporters finished up our group. Considering the price of tickets for the event, I knew that to get their money worth, they all expected an extreme fright. Twenty minutes passed and the flight still hadn't arrived so the taller twin, Tanya, started to make a fuss. This is so unprofessional, she said as she walked toward the wide hangar bay. I gathered she was hoping to find someone to complain to, and it was the first time that I noticed we were the only ones here. I read online the flights were always packed to the gills, so why were there only six of us? What do you suppose is going on? Isabella asked. She wasn't as chatty either. In fact, the whole group seemed on edge as we followed Tanya to the other side of the airfield. Even the wind had stopped blowing. Something about the night just suddenly seemed more sinister. As we turned to go back toward where we had parked, a sharp burst of air pierced the darkness and all of us felt it nearly knock us down. Tom, the Australian, lost his hat and actually tumbled over as I looked up and saw the large passenger plane seemingly appear out of nowhere. It was about the size of a Delta airline jetliner, with at least the capacity for 150 passengers or more, and painted entirely black to match the dark sky. A rumble of thunder crackled across the backdrop of the plane, as I noted that there were only a few windows on only one entrance, further showing that they intended for you to have an immersive experience once on board. I knew it hadn't been there moments ago, and now all of a sudden it had landed. The ramp to the first class seating area was already lowered, as though they had been the ones waiting for us rather than the other way around. Isabella gave me a nudge and said nervously, I told you they know how to make an entrance. I nodded and grabbed my things heading toward the plane, as I spotted one of the stewardesses gathering luggage from the other passengers. Tom was the first in line, eager to be aboard. Welcome back, Mr. Bradley. Always a pleasure to have you flying with us. A pale blonde employee said. Her face looked so perfect, 
I half thought that she was a robotic of some kind. So pristine and exact. Tom became red in the face. Apparently not anticipating that, they would give away his apparent frequent flyer status and then dashed up the steps to find a seat before any of us had a chance to open a conversation about it. Do you have your tickets? The stewardess asked, focusing on the twins next. Riley, the shorter one, took them out of her pocket and both of them eagerly entered without much fanfare. I was next. Welcome back, Mr. Declan. I see you came prepared this time. The stewardess said as I took out my ticket. I gave her a look of confusion. This is my first time, I told her. The stewardess didn't blink as she ripped the ticket and told me, Well, of course it is. Yes, I must have confused you with someone else. I didn't bother asking any other questions as I figured it was probably part of the show, and boarded the plane as well. At the front, before the first class cabin area, two more blonde stewardesses that looked almost identical to the one I had seen outside greeted me outside of the pilot's chambers and offered me a warm drink, which resembled some kind of raspberry tonic. Before takeoff, we recommend all passengers drink this mixture. It will prevent any sort of nausea or displacement, the first woman told me. I knew it was likely they wouldn't let me board unless I downed the concoction, so I downed it hurriedly, and they pushed open the curtains to look at the interior of the cabin. Much to my surprise, it looked like an ordinary jetliner, with rows of compartments above the seats for luggage, and about five seats on either side of the aisle, most of which were empty. I checked my stub to see where I was supposed to seat. Economy row C. Seat 3. The Aussie was the only one of us in first class, and I almost envied his deep pockets, wondering if his experience would be entirely different from our own. Back in economy, I immediately felt a bit more cramped and claustrophobic, especially due to the dim lighting. Was that for aesthetics, I wondered, as I moved to my seat and noted I was near a window, a window that appeared to be sealed shut. A moment later, an Asian businessman appeared from the curtain and nodded, sitting down next to me. Did you get here late? I asked, not recalling him in the crowd outside. He responded in his native tongue and took the seat beside me, nervously fidgeting with his wedding ring as more passengers boarded. Bloody hell, where are all these people coming from? I asked, noticing a whole family pass us to go to third class. I reached over to my window to try and see if maybe a large group had shown up at the last minute, but then Isabella reached from the row behind me and kept me from opening it. I wouldn't do that if I were you, she warned. I snatched my hand away, tired of her games and pulled the shutter on the window up anyway. But the airfield didn't look familiar anymore. Instead, it seemed as though we were landed somewhere in a busy city district, like Hong Kong or Seoul. Nowhere near the same rustic countryside of Midwest America. What the? I whispered as Isabella shut it back. We're about to take off and trust me, you want these closed, she warned again. This time, I decided to listen. Another stewardess appeared near the front of the cabin and grabbed a small speaker connected to the compartment beside her to give us a few guidelines. I couldn't help but to notice now the plane was seemingly packed full of people.
Good evening. On behalf of all of us here at Full Moon Flights, we want to thank you again for joining us on this amazing journey. The captain has turned on the fasten seatbelt sign at this time, as we go over a few instructions in the event of an emergency. She said in a sing-song voice. Honestly, she seemed a bit too chipper given the information she next presented. As you might have noticed during your arrival, there are no emergency exits or equipment on board the flight. We have optimized the cabin to be entirely for the experience into the unknown. That being said, should we encounter any unanticipated turbulence, we ask all passengers to remain seated. The safest bet for us to reach our destination will be your full cooperation in these circumstances. I couldn't believe what I was hearing, especially how dangerous it sounded. I heard one man behind me cuss profusely. As the stewardess next explained, there was no emergency oxygen on the airliner either. Rest assured that what you will be dealing with tonight will take your breath away, but if you can face it, you will get to your destination as intended. She said as she finished her announcement, and then disappeared to the front of the plane. Something about the way she spoke made me feel very uneasy. Her choice of words felt intentionally vague. A clamor of gossip stirred as we all wondered what the heck we had signed up for. This must be just to get us nervous, a younger girl said if you rose up. I heard they intentionally make it this intense before the show starts, another man said. It made me a little calmer to hear these rumors swirl about, but I still had no idea what to expect. Behind me, Isabella squeezed my shoulder and muttered, Buckle up, Max. I obeyed her and listened as a new voice came over the intercom. This one was gruff and sounded distorted, almost inhuman. This is your captain speaking. We are T-minus three minutes to take off. I'm not sure why, but the succinct way he spoke, coupled with the way my stomach was twisting into a knot, made me very uneasy. There was no turning back, no escape, I realized. And then the plane began to move. Instinctively, I gripped the seat cushion as I felt the engines begin to roar and the plane shake and pick up speed. The Asian businessman next to me did the same, closing his eyes and seemingly chanting. Was he praying? I could hear the wheels skid against the runway and the noise grow louder as I was pushed into the seat a bit by the thrust of the engines. And then we began to ascend. The roar got louder as I looked about at some of the other passengers to see their reaction. Some were grabbing bags to puke in, clearly new flyers while others were excitedly counting the seconds as we kept going higher. I wasn't sure which category I fit in, but I was ready for the flight to stop its rush into the heavens. The plane shook again as we reached what I assumed was highest altitude, and the light above my seat told me that I could move above the cabin freely. Immediately, I turned to Isabella to get some clear understanding of what to expect, only to find that she had already unbuckled and left to the third-class cabin. I sighed in frustration, trying to get the attention of a stewardess, but the woman were now standing toward the front, like statues, unblinking and looking on toward us. It was bizarre, but exactly what I expected for this sort of thing. I took a few breaths, then I calmed down, 
reminding myself that I should be trying to enjoy the experience. As I saw the curtain behind the stewardess open, and a woman wearing a geisha dress and kabuki mask enter, dancing amid the aisle toward my row. Immediately, the Asian man next to me tensed up. I saw his face and had a look of panic. Was this someone that he knew? Had the flight personnel secretly allowed them to board? Was he in danger? The woman got closer and then bowed respectively toward me, clearly waiting to sit beside the businessman. I'm not sure why, but I felt obliged to let her in and moved out toward the aisle. The businessman started to shout something in alarm and tried to unbuckle, and then the woman straddled his lap. It almost looked like she wanted to make out with him as I watched her gently touch his face. He started to shout louder, and I watched as the woman leaned in for a kiss. Someone squeezed my shoulder again and I turned to see Isabella standing there. Come with me, she ordered. I half wanted to see what would happen to the man that I was sitting beside, but still I obeyed. Clearly she knew more about this flight than me. As we entered a third class, I found myself taking a moment to adjust to the darkness in the room. There weren't any windows back here, and the only dim lighting was coming from the screens on the back of each of the seats. Miniature flat screen televisions that all of the passengers were glued to like zombies. Oh, what is this? I whispered, worried that our voices would break some of them from a trance. I believe they're doing something to them, brainwashing or something. I'm not sure. I was hoping you could help me get into the luggage compartment overhead, she said as we made it to the middle of the aisle. I noticed that the expressions on the people's faces seemed contorted with terror or dread, as though whatever they were watching were driving them mad. Uh, sure, but before I do that, you need to be honest with me. Why are you really here? I asked. Isabella bit her lip and glanced toward the door. We don't have time for that. The stewardesses will be here any moment, so can you help me break this open or not? I huffed and I looked at the lock, realizing that I actually did have something that could open it up. Uh, yeah, sure. Let me go back to my luggage. Isabella told me to hurry as I returned to economy class and saw these stewardesses were now removing something from the seat near me. It looked like the shriveled up remains of the businessman. It looked like a corpse. Mr. DeClan, your in-flight movie is about to start, the first stewardess said. As I noticed that, now there was a mini-TV in front of my seat as well. Had that always been there? Um, what happened to the man sitting beside me? I asked. I now noticed there seemed to be red dark stains on the seat. Blood. It's best if you keep your journey to yourself and not worry about others. The stewardess said with a pleasant smile. She stood there, waiting for me to comply with her instructions. Hesitantly, I sat down and put on my headphones. Everything about this was beginning to grow increasingly stranger and stranger. Not what I had signed up for at all. As I activated the screen in front of me, a burst of white noise pierced my ears and I nearly knocked the headphones off and then crashing waves filled the screen and I froze. What I was seeing didn't seem possible. It was showing me memories of my time as a child near the beach, 
memories that I'd never shared with anyone. I watched in amazement as I saw my own mother in the ways. This was the moment that she had taken her own life, I thought. A secret that I had wanted to take to my grave. How could this flight know? The noise got louder as I heard whispers amid the waves. Something was speaking to me, telling me its own secrets. Chills ran down my spine as every moment played out exactly as I'd remembered it. My mother was just walking into the water, unconcerned with my cries as the waves had crashed over her body. The whispers got louder. It sounded just like her. Join me, it croaked. And then, shots rang out amid the cabin. I jolted back to reality and saw Tom entering economy class waving a pistol about. The stewardess was his victim. Her lifeless body sprawled on the aisle in front of me. Except, there was no blood. She just looked like a mannequin now. What the heck, man? I shouted, standing up as he neared my seat. Don't let him harvest you, Max. You're too good for that. We can make it through this together. But you have to help me, you hear? He said. Other passengers were screaming as he waved the gun around, warning them to stay back. What is wrong with you? They're all bloody frightened of you, I shouted. That's exactly what they want you to think. Now take me to that stupid chick you talked to earlier, he ordered. I raised my hands up defensively, and we walked together toward a third class. Look, whatever you think this is, it's not. These are just actors, I told him as we entered the dark room. Even when I said that, I didn't fully believe it. Something deep in the pit of my stomach told me that none of this was normal. I planned to use the sudden shift in light to take advantage of him, but I never made it that far. Instead, the entire plane started to shake due to turbulence, and he lost the gun. It slid across the floor as he fell on me, and I shouted to Isabella to find it. She obeyed and I turned to punch Tom straight in the jaw, as the lights in the cabin began to flicker. And then all the passengers around us started to convulse and go into shock, seemingly being given a stroke due to the sudden loss of power. Amid the chaos, somehow Isabella found the weapon and aimed it toward me. Tom had already produced a knife, and I shouted for her to shoot him. Instead, she aimed at the luggage compartment over our heads. A single bullet caused the lock to blast off, and several small bags fell, causing Tom's knife to become lodged in my shoulder. Crap, I said as I looked across at some of the passengers, begging them to help. Instead, they were beginning to attack each other. One man was mauling out his son's eyes and eating them. A woman was digging straight into her face, trying to rip skin off and two children were smashing each other in the stomach constantly with sharp forks. Many hoped that I had that this was all an act died at that moment. Isabella scrambled to search amid the bags as Tom got his bearings, and then she found what she was looking for. It looked like a small briefcase. Don't, Tom shouted. I frowned, trying to figure out what the heck was happening, as she put the correct key code on the latches and bolted. Inside, there were six coals filled with a growing yellow serum. She grabbed one and rushed toward the Aussie. I crawled out of the way into one of the seats and she lunged and pierced his neck, 
forcing the needle all the way in. I saw Tom's eyes dilate and then go completely black, and then he fell to the floor unconscious. I snatched up his knife, just in case things got crazier from here. It was a smart call. Before I got a chance to even ask Isabella what the heck she was doing, she was through the curtain to economy class. I slowly stood up, trying to catch my breath when one of the mutilated passengers grabbed a hold of me, forcing me to stare into their hollow, sunken face. There wasn't even a face there anymore, just a maw with endless teeth. Somehow, they had transformed into nightmarish beings. I pushed it away and tumbled over time to get back to economy class, pausing in between the two cabins to go into the restroom. The small room felt so much more claustrophobic than usual, as I locked the door and I looked at my reflection in the mirror. Splashing water on my face, I tried to get a hold of myself enchanted. It's all in your head, Max. It's all in your head. I gripped the sink for a minute and felt my breathing return to normal, hoping that maybe I was able to come back to normalcy. And then I noticed something shimmer in the mirror. I looked at it for a short moment, frowning in concern. And then my reflection smiled wickedly toward me. A second later, a strong, icy hand emerged from the mirror and gripped my neck. I was gasping for breath as I felt my reflection strangle me, and I reached into my pocket where Tom's knife was still hidden away. I sliced it across the doppelganger's arm, causing the strange black slime to bleed out from him as he loosened his grip and I escaped to the main cabin. I was still trying to make heads or tails of what was happening when I caught sight of the twins. After all that had just happened, I could hardly remember their names. Riley and Tanya. All I knew for sure was that they were both covered in blood, hobbling toward me with heads. Knives in their hands, having carved off each other's skulls, blocking my way to first class. I could hear Isabella shouting something to a stewardess as I looked back towards third class. The jetliner was shaking violently again, and I heard the captain announce something overhead. Attention, esteemed guests. We are entering a rough patch and I advise you to buckle up. He said in a voice that sounded too excited for the coming maelstrom. Suddenly, I was thrust to the ceiling. The twins fell upward as well, their bloody bodies toppling like rag dogs as I found myself unable to avoid sliding into them. The airliner shook and I slowly moved toward the aisle where this all began, trying desperately to regain my footing. And then I heard a loud growl from the third class cabin. I shouldn't have looked. Tom's head peered out of the curtain. What followed it was a not human. It had a long neck, like a giraffe without skin, and legs that were as wide as the entire cabin, stretching out towards passengers and stepping on them like ants. The legs had mouths like a Venus flytrap, shrieking as the strange creature twisted its body like a contortionist. It clung to the ceiling, Tom's pure black eyes looking straight at me, as his chest opened up and hundreds of miniature spidery creatures skittered towards me. Holy crap. Isabella shouted as she entered the room. Tom leapt toward her, shrieking as his mandibles ripped into her chest. The plane started to level again, and I moved down to my seat, desperately trying to find some way off. 
All I could think to do was break the window. I still had Tom's knife and my rattled brain told me to give it a try. Reaching toward the window, I raised it up even as I heard Isabella scream for me to stop. I was expecting to see just the darkness of the night. Instead, it was a blinding light, hitting me right in the face as I covered my eyes and tried to hit the window. I heard the glass crack, and I kept going as hard as I could. Suddenly, the screams in the cabin were replaced with the roar of the void. Whatever was beyond the window, I had managed to reach it, and now we were all about to be sucked out. I gripped my seat as hard as I could as alarms began to blare. Tom's gargantuan body was the first to go. It was like watching a camel be shoved through a needle hole. His face contorted and I heard the breaking of bones. He tried to grab a hold of me, his tongue lapping out and sliding against my face as I heard him mindlessly groan. His front claw grabbed my hand and I lost my grip. His legs hitting the shattered glass as I felt the roar of the plane against my body. It felt like I was a puppet, being dragged by a massive child. I was gripping the window, looking toward the heavens. I can't describe the impossible things I saw in that sky. This was not our Earth, not our reality. It was a kaleidoscope of universes crashing into one another, exploding in rainbows of colors that I couldn't comprehend. From the endless, ethereal streaks of light and dark, massive tentacles wrapped around the plane like vines, suffocating it. I could see something just beyond the horizon. A maw, the jaws of eternal damnation themselves, ready to swallow me whole. Isabella reached out of the window to grab my hand and struggled to pull me in. I was lost in the gaze of the eyes of the demonic entity that awaited us. As soon as I was inside, I saw that she had another serum prepared, this time for me. You really should have taken the pill, bud. She warned as she stabbed at my arm before I could get a chance to react. The world spun. I saw her face begin to melt away. In its place was the twins, growing two necks and forming a single monster to grin devilishly at me. And then they faded and showed the geisha woman, except this time her kabuki mask was made of flesh, the remains of her husband. Her long cloud-like fingernails dragged at my chest as she removed the mask, and I saw my own mother, her lifeless eyes locked with my own as I fell into an ocean of sleep. I can't remember what happened next. It felt like I was having an out-of-body experience. I was above the plane now, watching as the tentacles of the monster crushed it and swallowed it whole. These streaks of passengers, not just hundreds but millions from all across reality, being fed into this hungry monster's jaws. And then I was back in my seat. The unfasten your seatbelt sign flashed on and I gripped my cushion, looking toward the Asian businessman who was now seemingly alive. How was I alive? I looked down on my arm, rubbing the place where Isabella had injected me. It still felt sore. This hadn't been a dream, I realized as I looked around the cabin. The overhead intercom came out again. Attention passengers, we are about to arrive at our destination. 
please remain seated to enjoy the full experience. I felt a squeeze in my shoulder and then Isabella whispered into my ear. Everything you just experienced was real. It just happened here, yet. You need to find Tom and get off this flight. Now. I was about to turn to her when she squeezed my sore spot harder and snapped at me. Don't look back and don't hesitate. Just run. And then she passed me a gun. Was it the same one that Tom had used before? I wasn't sure. My heart started pumping fast as I unbuckled and moved towards first class. The stewardesses were blocking my way. For some reason I knew they would try to stop me. So I swung the hammer of the weapon straight toward the left one. The two of them slammed into each other and it sounded like two dummies collapsing against one another in a store. I pushed past them to enter the first class seating area. Most of the passengers here were rich upper class, just like any normal flight. But as I moved down the aisle, I couldn't help but to notice the color was drained from their faces. They were trapped in their seats, unable to move. I reached toward one man to try and wake him, and his skin became as brittle as ash. They are husks, a voice said in front of me. I turned and looked to see a man standing there wearing a pilot uniform, but nothing about him made me feel that he was human. He might have once been, but now all that remained was his memory. What are you doing to them? I asked, my voice trembling as I searched the cabin for Tom. Isabella's warning was ringing on my head, but I still needed to know more. Only what they signed up for. What you've already experienced. You've cheated, Max. Seen the end of the journey and managed to make it back. But it doesn't matter. The fear we can harvest from your soul is endless. You will never truly leave this flight. He said, taking a step toward me. I clenched my fist and cocked the weapon toward him. Letting loose a few rounds into his body. It didn't deter the specter. I'm not even sure why I tried after all I had seen. But it did grab Tom's attention. He stood up and moved toward me. What are you doing, man? Do you want to get us both killed? He shouted. I looked toward the gun. My hands shaking as I saw a scar was beginning to form on my arm. How had it gotten there? I think we might already be dead. I said, passing him the weapon. The ghost pilot was gone temporarily, but Tom warned it wouldn't matter. God, my head hurts. That drug really did a number on me, he said, rubbing the spot where Isabella had injected him. How is any of this possible? I said, my mouth dry as he led me back through economy class. This time, I saw my doppelganger again, sitting there, staring out of the window and watching as the jetliner began to shake again. Tom was rattling off an explanation, or an interpretation of events to me as we moved on. From what I understand, the plane moves beyond the realm of space and time that we know, past the horizon into a new endless dimension, one where pure chaos is born. The people, if they are that who run this contraption, they are feeding a creature, trying to birth it into the reality, this reality that we know of. It's growing stronger, Max. Every new flight is harvesting more memories of reality and fear into it, he said. We were almost to the back of the plane now. No one had stopped us. His explanation made more sense to me as we stood there, 
and he started to look among the things before commenting. You probably have a dozen other questions about this mess. Like how I know all this and why Isabella, if that is a real name, is helping us. I don't know. I came aboard for my own life. She boarded a flight three years ago, and I'm gonna find her. He paused and passed me the weapon, along with the parachute. But that is entire journey ends, Max. You've got a chance to get out. Warn the world if you can. Just don't worry about me. If your wife is trapped here, you'll need to give her the serum that we both took. He nodded, nodding me adieu as he left to search the plane. The luggage compartment was oddly silent as the jetliner shook again and I put on my backpack. I slowly walked toward the back of the plane, near to where the landing gear was stored. It would be the safest place to jump, I realized. I crouched down and gently kicked at the shutters beneath the gear, wondering how strong they were. And then I heard a faint whisper. Someone was there with me. Instinctively, I jolted up and cocked the weapon. Show yourself. From amid the luggage, I saw a shadow move and slither toward me. Eventually, it had formed a shape. The ghost pilot. No, it was a doppelganger of my own mother, I realized. Don't come any closer, I wonder. Her eyes looked so watery and full of pain. Max, it's me. I'm real. This is real, all of it, she whispered to me. It can't be. You're dead, I shouted back. I saw you die. That was just one way my journey ended. It doesn't have to be that way anymore, she said with a gentle smile. The journey has shown me so much. We can have a life together. Endless amounts of lives. I heard another rustle amid the luggage. It was Isabella coming to check on me. Max, don't listen to her. You have to leave. No, you can't leave, Max. No one can. Board the flight. You are a part of the ship. Another voice cackled under the rafters. My mother raised a welcoming hand toward me. This can be the life we never got together. She pleaded with me. I knew it was a trap, but it felt so inviting. To be able to escape into an endless cacophony of realities where I could experience the love of a mom I never knew. But none of it would be real, I realized. Then I steadied my arm and fired straight at her head. The shadow screamed and blurred into a thousand slithering eels as Isabella shouted for me to go. I turned and slammed my foot against the landing gear again and again. The black slime oozed toward me, these screeching eels rapidly closing in for a chokehold. And then finally, the metal gave way and I saw clouds beneath my feet. Come with me, I shouted to Isabella. After all she had done to help me, it felt like helping her was the right thing to do. It's too late for me. I'm a part of the ship already, but I'll be here to help people get off every dang time, she responded. I reached for her, ignoring her insistence that she was doomed, but instead these shadows ensnared her. And I watched as a black slime poured into her eyes and mouth. The shadow began to eat away at her body, and I knew that I had to leave. Crawling down to the landing gear, the rush of air beneath the plane was overwhelming. I heard these screams from the flight roar and I didn't hesitate this time. I jumped. 
Spiraling into the air, I heard the roar of white noise and looked up to see an empty sky, like it had never been there at all. The force of my fall began to increase and I pulled on my parachute cord, feeling it tug and jolt me up in the air. And then everything began to slow. I was drifting amid the atmosphere. Gradually, I made my way to the surface, tumbling about on the soft ground. As I got my bearings, I was back at the airfield. Standing up, I checked my watch and realized that not a minute had passed since I had boarded. I shook off the parachute and stumbled toward the road, watching as some cars approached. I covered my eyes as one car parked in front of me and a man dressed in a British explorer's outfit stepped out. What in the devil have you just been through, my good man? He asked, clearly startled by my appearance. I saw a couple behind him holding tickets, apparently awaiting an up-and-coming flight. I opened my mouth to tell to warn him, and then I saw a familiar face in the crowd. Isabella. I moved toward her, grabbed a hold of her arm and muttered, Are you real? Is this real? Hey, hands off. What's gotten into you, bud? She said, shaking me off like she didn't know me. I still felt like my head was spinning. You're here for the full moon flight, I asked, trying to understand and carefully choosing my words. Yeah, first time. I heard that there was a scream. You've been on one yourself, Isabella asked. I didn't see a hint of deception in her eyes. Slowly, I nodded, reaching into my pocket and passing her the pill that she had given me right before I boarded. Only she hadn't done that yet. You'll need this for the trip, I told her. She gave me a look of puzzlement and I walked off without another word. I knew there was nothing I could say to even explain how I understood her role now for this. A moment later, I felt a rush of wind and the dark jetliner appeared right behind the hangar bay like it had before. A journey into the unknown, an experience like no other. That's what the reviews say. But that isn't what mine is going to say. This is my review for Full Moon Flights. Don't believe the hype. This event is a killer. And you don't want to become a frequent flyer like me. ProjectDeath.exe Written by Suck359 Before I start, I, a 35-year-old male, need to tell you who I am and what I do for a living. You see, I was a hacker on the private nets for nearly a decade. I'm not necessarily proud of it, and I'll never be. But believe me when I say, the dark web is not a place to mess around. It's no joke. Have you ever heard the saying, curiosity killed the cat? Well... That's exactly what could happen to you on the dark web. Curiosity can get you killed. I, along with other dark web users, have experienced horrific things in our earlier days all because we were too dumb to mind our own business. We wandered off to a place that we weren't welcomed. Needless to say, I learned my lesson quickly. My point is, I regret becoming a hacker and I highly discourage anyone from following in my footsteps. And also, 
It's not for the reasons you would expect. I never went to prison because I was caught or anything like that. Nor did I get into any trouble with the wrong kinds of people. No, but God, if only it were that simple. Instead, my case is strange and unusual, and far worse than otherwise. So, this is why I will never be a hacker. Not in a million years again. So, now that you're up to pace with who I am, I could tell you about the incident. This took place about a year ago, in September of 2019. I should also add that I had a girlfriend. For the sake of her privacy, I will refer to her as Amanda. We met off the dark web and before long, we were living together in a small house in the suburbs of Phoenix. And for a while, things seemed like they were perfect. That was until this happened. This story does not start off for the faint of heart. In fact, what happened on that night made me think twice about living and made me consider slitting my wrist. This all started off like any other night. Me and my girlfriend cuddled together in our warm beds, slowly falling asleep. Just as I was on the brink of shutting my eyes and having a good night's rest, Amanda stood up and walked out of her room. I assumed she was getting a glass of water, so I continued on with my slumber. Suddenly, I was startled awake when I heard a window shatter. From down the hall, I heard Amanda scream her lungs out in terror. As soon as the screaming started, it stopped. I heard something being dragged out of our house. I immediately jumped out of bed and ran into the door, stumbling out of my room. I looked around for her, but by the time I was on the phone dialing 911, it was already too late. I was interviewed in the morning under the condition that I would be investigated. I was the main suspect, since I was one of the few people who knew Amanda on a personal level. I still remember when I was taken to the interrogation room, and I could hardly believe the earlier events. I was still in shock. Eventually, after hours of interrogation, I was let go. Now, I won't get into all the details, but to put it short, my neighbor's security camera saved me from being blamed for her kidnapping. The security footage showed a black SUV with tinted windows driving up to our house. The doors opened to reveal three burly men carrying duct tape, presumably to cut off the screams. They broke in through one of the windows, having a look of malice plastered on their faces. And then the screams. Oh god, the screams. They were bone chilling. It made me shudder, forcing me to think of the events of so long ago. Once the police got a hold of the footage, I was no longer their main target, although I was kept a close eye on since I could have easily hired someone to kidnap her. Of course, I didn't tell them this. It stayed like that for nearly two years. No lead, no evidence, no confessions. The case was cold. I told myself I would recover, and my mourning and despair would soon turn into memories, sad ones at that. That I would soon be a better person and overcome that stage, and I really tried to make that a reality, 
Instead, life took a turn for the worst. At the best of times, I barely managed to stay sober enough through all that tequila to do my once exciting, now miserable job. As I said, things were going downhill. I was spending the thousands I had made in the past at an alarming rate. My life was ruined. Things would never be the same after Amanda's kidnapping and presumed death, and, and I knew it. And you may think it couldn't get any worse. That's exactly what I would have thought if I were you back then. But it turns out, things could get much worse. This is why I'm typing this now. I'm next. Or maybe it's for the best. I awoke like any day. My messy hair and sunken eyes making me look like a zombie. I groggily walked over to my monitor, already expecting the usual day's hassle. I was never the biggest of fans on waking up early in the video, but I suppose as an adult, you have to make sacrifices so you could get that satisfying paycheck every month. As I booted up my monitor, I noticed an email had been sent to me. Now, I don't have many subscriptions, nor do I usually get many emails, so this was out of the ordinary. So, instinctively, I clicked on it. But this action only served to confuse me even more. ProjectDeath.exe I slowly read off my laptop screen. What was even stranger is that it had no sender's address. I was a bit pissed since this was probably some stupid junk mail but more so confused. And so I made what will forever stay the worst decision of my life. I clicked on it. Out of all the things I could have done, delete it, forget about it, and pretend that it never existed. I chose to satisfy my curiosity over saving my sanity and not having to endure that pain. It opened to a blank page. At least it seemed like that at first. I stared at it for a minute, not really knowing what to do. Then, just as I was about to close it, text appeared in the middle of the page. As I've said one too many times, this happened a year ago, so obviously I can't remember everything, but I'll attempt to transcribe the text down below. What is Project Death? Experiment.98, also known as Project Death, is an experiment meant to test the limits of the human body to death. It has been funded by various organizations for further research and future developments. The participants have been carefully picked. Their backgrounds have been reviewed. And said participants' physical and mental state has been overviewed beforehand. How does it work? Our experiment takes place in our advanced facility in the secluded Nevada desert, where the information and tapes cannot be uncovered and revealed. In the extremely unlikely case the information is breached, via attacker and the other methods, the whistleblower will be taken care of immediately. Any of his or her family members and or close friends will be informed of an alternative account of the disappearance of said. Project Death experiments are filmed on 1080p videotape. The videotapes are designed so only the administration and other high ranks can view it. 
There are seven tapes in total. Each one contains one part of the experiment. They'll be listed down below. Curiosity was starting to get the best of me. I knew it was most likely some kind of weird joke, but I wanted to investigate. Who was doing this? So, before I could even process what I was doing, I had already scrolled down to find a pair of hyperlinks leading to these supposed tapes. I was half certain it would lead to the all-too-infamous Rickroll clip, but by that point, I was too far in to turn back. So, I clicked the first link, titled, Tape 1, Pain. As soon as the monitor loaded, all of the alarm bells on my mind were set off. On the screen, there were two men, one bald, the other tall and muscular. The taller of the bunch seemed to be holding a syringe of sorts. My fingers immediately shot up to the mouse, on the intention that I would pause the video. But as I scrolled around, I realized I couldn't pause it. Already getting more desperate and ticked at the idea, I tried shutting off my laptop. That served to do nothing as the video resumed. I laid back on my chair, not knowing what to do. Was I infected with a virus? Was something seriously wrong with my monitor? I relaxed, already entertaining the idea of watching the entire video through. So in a who cares sort of mood, I got a bottle of Gatorade next to my monitor and watched closely. After a minute of staring, a gurney was seen entering the screen. I looked closer only to see a body. It was perfectly fine, alive, but for some reason it started messing with my nerves. The man with the syringe brought it up and plunged it into the patient's bicep. Without warning, the patient's eyes flew open and he suddenly started to look around frantically. Where am I? Back off, creeps, he said in a desperate voice. Without response, the patient's body suddenly starts convulsing. He started screaming in what I could only describe as horror on a level I was naive to. The men didn't even flinch as they walked out of frame. I was horrified at this point. The realization dawned on me that this might have been more than just a joke. This was real. For some reason which I still cannot explain to this day, I decided to watch the second tape. I seriously don't know why I did that. Maybe I was hoping that the second tape would reveal it was some sick joke. Alas, I watched the tape labeled. Tape 2. Solitude. Now, the title of this tape really set it apart from the others. The other tapes were obvious deaths, like burning or anything else that whichever sick pervert who created this decided to add. However, this tape started off differently from the first tape. It showed a badly beaten woman, sobbing while strapped down to a chair. She was a middle-aged blonde woman, and looked rather pretty. It was such a shame to treat her like that. But eventually, things would get even worse. The video sped up making every passing real-world minute down to less than a second. I watched intently as the time sped up even more, the woman slowly deteriorating and more disheveled as time went on. 
after what must have been a huge amount of time. A mechanism that was meant to strap her down was intentionally broken loose by one of the men, now setting the woman free. Me, expecting her to fight for her life and run out of there as soon as possible, was already intrigued by the idea that these psychos would get justice for what they did. Instead, that never happened. The woman started banging her head on the nearest wall. Every time her head would hit the concrete, I would hear a crunch. She kept on hitting her head on the wall just like some kind of lunatic out of an insane asylum. I knew they threw up when she had finished the job. Immediately, I turned away and shuddered. Was that real? What the heck was this person's problem? I kept asking myself the same question. Already disgusted, I plugged out its power source, finally putting it to rest once and for all. I don't know what changed me after that. Maybe it was the events that played out so recently, or maybe it was due to realizing how vulnerable I actually am. But after all that, I never want to go back on a computer ever again. So, that was all about a year ago. I had all but forgotten about it by this point. Well, I still remembered it. But it was those things always at the back of your mind. And thinking back on it always makes me wonder what else is on those other tapes. But I always stop myself from watching them when I remind myself what the first two tapes had showed. I can't even imagine what the third or fourth tape would contain. But that's not what I'm here to talk about. I've been seeing these black vehicles stopping outside my house and just staying there. I don't know what freaks me out more. The fact that these people are obviously tracking my every move. Or the fact that yesterday I received a text from an unknown number saying, You're next. My brother found a strange house in the woods. I saw something that I'll never forget. Written by Human Being 136. Ma'am, would you enjoy some tea? Yes, thank you. It is two in the morning. My medications give me horrible insomnia which keeps me awake at night. Thankfully, the kind nurses at the hospital don't mind making me some tea every so often. It helps stimulate my nerves a little. And besides, the company is always appreciated, especially considering that I don't have much time left. In life, I never had many friends, nor did I ever get married. Even after my health started to decline, my hands never stayed idle. It wasn't until a few years ago that my declining health forced me to retire and move to a nursing home. Shortly after, my terminal lung cancer forced me into the hospital. Yet, before I moved to America, I lived in Germany. Berlin's skyrise back then was minuscule compared to how it looks today. But to me, it was like I was living in a city of the gods. During the day, crowds of people walked down the narrow paved streets while I played tag with my friends. None of us caring whether the homework line on our bedroom floors got completed that night or not. 
Growing up, I wasn't yet old enough to understand the meaning behind all of the red, white, and black flags draped over the sides of buildings. As a young child, it seemed normal, and I never thought much of it. As children, my fellow classmates and I used to stare in awe at these soldiers as they marched in their pressed army jackets and sleek black boots. We would pretend that we were soldiers or Navy warships or German fighter pilots, flying proud over a contested battlefield. It was completely unbeknownst to us how the war had been affecting our minds. And it wasn't until our teachers made our classes say that all-too-familiar phrase before every period that my parents expressed their concern. They decided it was time for my younger brother Henry and I to take an extended vacation with my aunt and uncle in Switzerland. Of course, neither me nor my sibling understood the true reason behind this at the time. It wasn't until many years later that I understood my parents had wanted to send us away before things inevitably got bad in Germany. As it was, my parents had decided to stay behind and tend to the house while we were gone. They hugged and patted me and my brother on the platform after the train conductor yelled for us to come aboard. I distinctly remember the tears on my mother's face, black with wet mascara, as the train started moving out of the station. Only after a couple of hours on the train did the separation anxiety begin to settle in. I realized that I was now farther away from my home than I had ever been before. My brother, on the other hand, seemed to be fascinated by our new adventure and was eager to see what could happen. Unfortunately for my brother and I, our train tickets didn't permit us to use the bedroom booths, so we had to sleep on the standard train seats. After two days on the train without very much sleep at all, we were ecstatic when we woke up one morning in response to the train pulling into the station. Our final stop had arrived. Upon exiting the train, I could view my aunt and uncle standing on the platform. I had only seen them once before when they came to visit us in Germany. I remembered them as being some of the kindest human beings I had ever met. With a warm smile and a long, brown beard, my uncle never failed to crack a joke at the best possible time. My aunt, on the other hand, was tall and thin. She loved to sew, and every Christmas, my aunt sent warm woolen sweaters through the mail for my brother and I. My brother and I practically leaped out of the narrow train doors we ran into our smiling uncle's outstretched arms, right before we turned around and tenaciously hugged our grinning aunt. At first, I had thought that this trip would be incredibly painful and slow, but now I wasn't so sure. There is a shadow of possibility that maybe I might enjoy it. The train station was many miles from the house. We would need to take some horses in order to reach the remote building. Fortunately for me and my brother, we had been around horses several times at our grandparents' farm, and we knew how to handle them. The building was on the border of a forest underneath the imposing shadow of several large mountains. If you get past the feeling of seclusion while living there, it is actually quite scenic. After we finally made it to the property, a process that left very little daylight left in the sky, all four of us were exhausted. We tied the horses up in the family stables before my aunt and uncle led my brother and I through the thick cover of trees to their home. Upon reaching a clearing, my brother let out a gasp. 
Set in a small round clearing, the building before us was two stories tall and was far more magnificent than any structure my brother and I had seen before in Berlin. Several iron stakes formed a large rectangular palisade around the premise. Thick vines snaked between the dark bars. A worn dirt path led up and around from where we were standing to the heavy oaken door standing proud at the front of the structure. The building itself was made entirely out of grey brick and had small patches of moss growing on the walls. I concluded that this structure must have been here for a very long time. The roof of the first floor came down at a very gentle slope, and it had several decorative archways supporting its weight. In between the sides of each of the engraved arches was a petite window that had its blinds drawn inside. The second floor came out with a roof perpendicular to the first, yet kept the same beautiful design scheme. A single hexagonal tower sprouted off from one corner of the roof. Of the second floor in, the roof tapered off to a point. The house was so obvious in its splendor that my young brother was simply overwhelmed by emotion and ran, with his arms pumping at his sides around the yard. I was in awe. Nobody had ever told me that some of my kin owned something so worthy. The inside of the house had no less splendor. The floor was covered by a thick woolen carpet that appeared to be expensive. The trim on the house was a dark brown color, which went perfectly with the browns and grays of the rest of the building. I learned soon that the tower was a perfect office for when one needed some alone time to read or think. That night, the four of us had dinner in the massive dining room. My brother simply could not get over how fun it would be to explore the house and seek out new places. He was absolutely ecstatic as he poured a maple syrup all over his meat and peas, while he talked about how excited he was to be there. We all laughed at the face he made when he took the first bite of his food. Luckily, for my brother and I, there were two guest rooms in the house. And thus, both my brother and I were able to have our own room, like we had in Berlin. This was a great comfort to both me and my brother, for it made us seem more and more like we were still at home. Despite this, we still both missed our parents and it seemed like as time dragged on, the wedge in between us and the rest of our family grew larger. After a couple of weeks, we got our first letter in the mail from my mother and father. Inside, my parents had detailed that our stay would likely be prolonged, as a massive program had been instigated in Germany, and the violence was incredibly widespread. My parents believed that it would be in our best interest to stay with our aunt and uncle for the time being. My brother and I lived with my aunt and uncle like this for almost two years. I spent the vast majority of my time reading the books from the massive shelf in the living room, there seemed to be a nearly infinite amount of knowledge contained in words and bound in leather. Never did the pages bore me. I torn to them like a lion to its prey. My brother, however, didn't much care for books. He would much rather explore. The day he found himself having analyzed every last inch of my aunt and uncle's house, he took it upon himself to explore the woods surrounding the premises. This proved to be quite the challenging feat, as my brother spent months on end spending every afternoon hiking through the dense canopy of trees. My aunt and uncle had become concerned for his safety as he began a journey farther and farther from the house. 
but after writing a letter to my parents, they were assured that his behavior was nothing to be worried about. As it was, neither me nor my aunt or uncle thought very much about my brother's exploration. It wasn't until he was late to dinner one night that my aunt even bothered to ask him where he was going every day. He said that he had found a mysterious house in the middle of the woods. At this, my aunt just smiled. That's quite interesting, dear, but don't be late for supper while playing imagination, or you might not get anything to eat. It wasn't until several days later that I had started to become concerned about my brother's behavior. It was late in the afternoon, and I had spent the last two hours finishing up a novel that I had been attacking with incredible vigor for the last week or so. My brother had left that day earlier in the afternoon, and he hadn't come back yet. Only when I heard the front door open and close did I look up from my book. My mouth hung open in shock. My younger brother was positively covered in dirt and mud. His hair was matted and stuck up in tufts. Despite his soiled appearance, however, I was incredibly disturbed due to another aspect of his appearance. His shirt, which had been one of the fine woolen sweaters that our aunt had knitted him, was completely shredded. The fabric was torn, causing the wool to hang down in flaps across his torso. Six long cuts, still red with wet blood, ran across his chest from his shoulder to his hip. I was getting up from my chair to go get the attention of my uncle, when my brother's head jerked abruptly around to face me. His mouth opened to bear a set of vicious teeth while his throat emitted a guttural hiss of me. Shot, I slowly sat back down in my chair as my brother turned and limped back to his room. For the next few days, I avoided my brother like the plague. I wouldn't talk to him out of fear. At dinner, I insisted I not sit adjacent to him. When he calmly asked me to come into the forest with him, I immediately refused and I ran back into the house. My aunt and uncle couldn't understand why I had developed such a strong aversion to my sibling in a period of only a few days, but my brother didn't seem to care. The only thing he was interested in was getting back into the forest the next day. It was one morning after I had just finished my breakfast that I decided it was finally time to confront my brother. After finishing the next chapter in my book, in which I had learned that the royal knight had just escaped the prison and was now headed to slay the evil dragon, I got up from my bed and walked down the massive oaken staircase to my brother's room on the first floor. When there was no reply, I knocked again. The rap of my knuckles on the door was the only noise punctuating the eerie silence. The moment after I had knocked, the door suddenly swung inwards, and I laid my eyes upon a sickening sight. Piles of skeletons from small creatures littered the floor beside his bed. I immediately stood up and backed against the wall behind me, but there was nowhere to go. In the middle of the room sat my brother on the floor. His teeth were gnashing as he ferociously consumed a living mouse. The small creature was desperately squirming to get free, but its efforts were in vain as it failed to escape my brother's vice grab. Blood dripped down the corners of Henry's mouth as his eyes darted up to meet mine. Suddenly, my brother let out a hysterical scream and leaped across the room to attack me. I could feel his sharp teeth ripping into the side of my neck when I finally woke up.
It was just a dream. It was just a dream. Calm down. That night, I didn't sleep at all. Hours were spent staring at my ceiling wondering what was going on. At one point, I began crying. I didn't stop until I could see the morning lights begin to shine through the north window. The morning dew still coating the glass. That same afternoon, I was reading in my room, with the door locked, when I heard my brother knocking on the door. Marianne, can you please help me? I can't go anymore and I'm scared. Please. In my brother's voice, I could hear genuine fear. He was afraid for his life. My concern for my sibling outweighed my fear. I got it from my chair to open the door. When the figure standing in the hallway finally became visible, I immediately started tearing up. My brother's eyes were horribly bloodshot. Multiple sets of six long jagged cuts ran down the lengths of his arms, torso, and legs, having shredded apart his clothing and his body. Blood dripped from his blood-soaked shirt and fell onto the floor. With a glance towards the end of the hall, I noticed a set of bloody handprints on the windowsill. He had climbed in through the side of the house to avoid having my aunt and uncle see him, at least for the time being. It's coming for me, Marianne. It tried to escape, but I won't let it. I won't let it escape. Suddenly, my brother doubled over and was forced into a coughing fit. The sounds themselves, though, were far closer to desperate wheezes. My brother was dying. He visibly tried to compose himself in order to speak again. Please, please help me. As soon as he stood up, he was hunched over again. He continued hacking. Blood has sprayed out of his mouth as he suddenly collapsed to the ground and started convulsing on the now dark red carpet. Immediately, I bolted downstairs. My legs moved down the stairs five at a time as I screamed desperately for help. My uncle was up from his chair in a flash as he saw me enter the living room, sobbing uncontrollably. He reached up with his hands and shook me, yelling for me to explain what happened. I could barely even get my words out. Henry, he he's dying. Immediately, my uncle darted upstairs as my aunt rushed into the living room. When she saw my face, she immediately knew. Something had happened to my brother. My aunt walked over to me and hugged me before we walked upstairs together. My uncle was frantically opening all of the upstairs doors as he tried to find Henry. The slam of the door closing was followed by the whoosh of the next door opening. Upon searching the last room, my uncle returned to the hallway and cupped his hands around his mouth. Henry, where are you? My uncle's yells were only greeted by silence. He tried again this time even louder. The cry echoed off the quiet house. Nothing. The period following my brother's mysterious disappearance was a week full of sadness and quiet. I was inconsolable. My aunt and uncle tried to tell me that it wasn't my fault and that there was nothing I could have done. But I felt ashamed that I had abandoned Henry when he had needed me the most. Where before the house had seemed proud, exciting, and profound. It was now only a shell of its former glory. Every time I passed my brother's room, or saw his empty chair at the table, 
or the day when I had found one of my brother's journals talking about all the adventures he had found in Berlin. I faced a brutal reminder that my brother was gone. My aunt wanted to write a letter to my parents explaining what had happened. I, however, had rejected this proposal. My mind refused to accept that my brother was dead. It was for this reason that, eight days after my brother's disappearance, I left the house in the middle of the night, armed with only a backpack, water canteen, and a kerosene lamp. I searched the woods for my brother. For hours, I ran through the dense canopy, screaming my brother's name in vain. The frigid air tugged at my lungs as my legs carried me through the dark woods. I wasn't sure which way I was going at one point. I saw the same tree that I was sure I had seen before on my nightly track, but I pushed away the thought. After what felt like hours, I collapsed to the ground from overexertion. Through my foggy breath and the nightly air, I swore to my brother that I would find him. He wasn't dead. He couldn't be. Henry had always been there with me my whole life. I got back up and I stumbled on, shivering from what felt like icy needles poking into my cold hands. Blood dripped down my arms and knees from the thorns pulling up my clothes. My gait was irregular, but still, I continued on. Henry couldn't be dead. It wasn't until my hands started to go numb that I finally noticed something in the corner of my eye. Looking up from my feet, I halfway gasped in perplexity. Standing in front of me were the ruins of a massive house. The gothic archway of the front gate was only halfway intact, the other half completely rotted away by time. The wooden walls were grayed from the elements, and much of it that had not fallen away from the structure itself was covered in mold. Of the several windows on the ominous structure, only one was fully intact when viewing the house from the front, with the others having been either cracked or shattered completely. A large, rusty brass knocker and the shape of a wolf's head sat in the center of each of the front two doors. I wondered how long this strange structure had been here for. It must have been no later than the early 1800s or even the late 1700s when it was first built. The architecture and whereon the abode was indicative of this fact. I was preparing to return to my search when I remembered what my brother had said about a house in the woods. Could he be here? Staring up at the weathered mansion, I pondered this possibility. It was indeed feasible that a boy as young as my brother could be so adventurous and to not recognize the danger in wandering this far from home every day. If he had been attacked by a creature, this may perhaps reveal why he had been injured so badly. Against my better judgment, I turned and trudged on towards the rotting house. The likely once magnificent grounds were now overgrown with weeds and trees. My feet stuck in the dark mud of the forest floor and I almost lost my left boot in a wad of the syrupy dirt. While approaching the house, I noticed that one of the front two doors hung slightly ajar. In spite of this, I still walked up to the door and politely knocked the knocker on the door that wasn't open. After I hadn't heard a reply in over a minute, I resorted to calling out with my voice, yet to no avail. I wasn't deeply surprised, after all. This house was incredibly old. The chances that someone was still living here were slim. Curiosity getting the better of me, 
I pushed one of the doors open and I stepped inside the decaying structure. Immediately, I was greeted by the permeating stench of the rotting walls. Wrinkling my nose, I looked around the inside of the abandoned structure. A large crystal chandelier had fallen from the ceiling and shattered in the center of the main living room, leaving glass shards shattered all around the floor. These shards let off a bright glint in the wake of the moonlight. They seemed to ripple as my eyes scanned the room. A magnificent fireplace sat against the far wall of the room, but it had long since ran cold. Only ashes and dirt now sat on the hearth. Hanging on the wall above it was a painting of a man, yet it was still a challenge to make out any identifying features, for the paint had run together in grayed. Not only this, but six long slashes ran through the fabric of the painting itself, reducing what was likely a magnificent work of art into a macabre display of sadness and pain. Looking to my right, a long wooden hallway extended outwards, with several branches off to several rooms. Upon checking, I noticed that all had locked doors. The corridor eventually led to a large room that may have once been a bedroom. Unfortunately, it seemed as if part of the upper roof had caved in, thus crushing the moth-ridden silk sheets and oaken dresser. Upon further inspection of the main living room with the broken chandelier, I noticed that a back archway led to a large spiral staircase. The stairs of the magnificent stairwell were, unlike the rest of the mansion, actually intact, and were covered in scarlet red wool. The staircase led upwards to the top of the house. Only after creeping up the winding staircase did I realize how much of the upper floor was actually destroyed. Mold hung off the walls in large splotches as water dripped from the now drooping ceiling. Quite a bit of the floor had actually caved in already, and many of the bedrooms had collapsed. I saw several more paintings on this floor, but one specific drawing on the far wall caught my attention. Slowly, I strolled over to the simple-looking representation on the far wall. Only after getting close did I realize what it depicted. The painting was not hung in a tapestry. Rather, it was depicted of the door itself. Several dark red pentagrams, triangles, and other geometric shapes were sloppily etched into the fine white paint of the wooden door. The shapes surrounded a large scarlet red circle in the center of the drawing. In the center of the circle hung a handprint with six fingers. The shapes and hand looked wrong somehow, like they shouldn't exist in this world. After staring for a few seconds, it seemed like the door was swirling, like it was falling farther and farther from my body while somehow getting closer. Only after a few seconds did I realize that it wasn't chalk. It was dried blood. A horrifying scream like none I had ever heard before echoed through the bleak mansion. The sound didn't stop. It seemed to actually up in intensity. It seemed as if someone was in pain. My legs flew down the spiral staircase. The sounds became louder and louder as I ran down the stairwell. Taking the staircase yet further down from the main floor, I noticed that there was a large wooden door sitting at the bottom of the staircase. Upon opening it, I noticed that it led to a dark passageway in the earth. I could not make out where the passageway led, but the sounds appeared to be coming from within it. Dead root hung down from the top of the moldy crevice.
forced to slow to a plodding creep by the narrow ceiling and steep vertical incline of the ramp. I anxiously made my way deeper and deeper into the ground. It was pitch black. My only sight came from my hands on the walls of the crevice while I felt my way around. At first, these screams were deafening, but they eventually became quieter and quieter, until all that was audible was a faint groan, and then nothing. Eventually, my head cleared the ceiling as I stepped into a massive dark room. I couldn't see anything at all, and the only noise was the sound of my cold lungs breathing, exhaling the cold, damp air. It was then that I remembered the kerosene lamp that I had brought with me. Cautiously, I removed the dusty old lantern. With a shaking hand, I turned up the fuel. A warm glow flooded the room as I nearly dropped the lantern and recoiled in pure horror. In the center of the room was a simple wooden chair. On the chair sat my brother. His eyes were rolled up in the back of his head, and his mouth hung open at a strange angle. Blood dripped out from the corners of his lips and his nostrils. Around the chair, I could see a wide circle of teeth, each tooth laid on its side. It was like some sort of bizarre ritual. Looking back at my brother's open mouth, I noticed that the ritualistic circle had been made out of his teeth. Henry, please, are, are you okay? Please say something. Tears streamed by my face when I heard no reply. I knew immediately something was wrong, but I couldn't will my legs to run away. A voice in the back of my head said that I needed to run to get out. I ignored it. It was then that I noticed my brother's mouth. It hung open wide, far too wide for a normal mouth to go. Not just that, though. But I should have seen his gums, his tongue, his throat, and the source of the blood coming from his throat. Yet, all I saw was blackness. It was like his mouth was some sort of doorway into the abyss. Still unmoving, I continued staring at my brother, waiting for him to jump up and laugh, waiting for him to say that it was all a prank, waiting for him to walk back home with me before the sun rose in the early hours of the morning. I heard another scream, but this time it wasn't my brother letting out the sound. Like the screech of a shard of metal on a blackboard, the noise ricocheted off the confined walls of the cellar. Yet still, I did not dare move a muscle. I only ran when I saw these six long fingers reach out from the depths of my brother's mouth. My legs and arms clawed at the dearth path back up to the surface, lungs burning with the effort of moving so quickly. I half ran, half climbed out of the dark cellar. Another otherworldly screech resounded off the dirt walls right behind me, but it only made me go faster. Shoving the cellar door open, I sprinted up the spiral staircase and practically leaped onto the main floor. I was never much of a runner, but it was then that my long legs carried me across the house and soon the forest floor faster and harder than ever before. I couldn't even feel the cold air in my throat until I collapsed, exhausted, at the front gate of my aunt and uncle's house. I had been running all night. My worried aunt and uncle finally found me, sobbing and shivering from the frigid air on their front doorstep. My demeanor revealed the reality of my brother's fate. My aunt sat by me and cried alongside me, before my sorrowful uncle wrapped me up in a blanket and took me inside. 
The weeks that followed constituted the absolute worst time of my life. I'm not really sure when the River of Tears finally ended. I think it must have been at least two weeks after I learned of the death of my parents in a bombing. My life seemed like it had fallen apart. In many ways it had. Even though my aunt and uncle had offered for me to live with them long term, I knew that my life needed to pick up somewhere. It was then that I decided to move to America and learn English. As a young child, I had dreamt of all the opportunities for women to join the workforce in the States. Now that the war has ended, these opportunities were ever-present. Not only in America has suffrage taken hold, Germany and many other countries also had new opportunities for women to work. Yet with the governments of many of the Axis powers now lying in shambles, my greatest chance at getting a career was in the US. Fate had turned a merciful eye to me. It took many years and many sleepless nights learning how to read and write English, but eventually, my application for citizenship was approved. I got my first job working retail, which is where I worked for my entire life. Suddenly a tap at the door interrupted my typing. Ma'am, your tea is ready. I was prepared to grant my nurse permission to enter my room when I thought about the rapping of knuckles that had come at my door. There had not been five taps. There were six. After I saw them, I couldn't sleep the same again. Written by Danger Dyer Not everyone can afford to travel, but since I can, I always do my best to make the most out of it. I usually travel with someone, like my friends or one of my brothers. This time, none of them could come with me, having plans of their own. It was fine with me. I figured it would be a good time to experience and travel on my own. A lot of trips with my friends just involve us finding a new place to get drunk anyway, or going to some big place to see the popular landmarks. Me though, I like to take my time appreciating places, even the smaller, more unknown parts of the world, and I hadn't done that in a while. Since I wanted to save money and had been meaning to get more exercise in, I made this a cycling holiday. The town I went to through wasn't my actual destination. It was just a place to stop for the night while I passed through. I don't even remember the name. The only reason I even stayed there was because I was behind schedule on my journey. The trip had taken more out of me than I originally anticipated. I arrived in the afternoon, tired out of my mind and just wanting some place to rest. On the road entering this town, there was a bed and breakfast. It was one of the first things I saw when I arrived, advertising itself with a sign right outside of the building. Gossamer was the name that it used. I got in, rushing through the process of booking myself in. I was tired, cold, and soaked with my own sweat. I hadn't prepared very well and the trip took more out of me than I thought. And from how things were starting to look outside, I would be soaking with something else soon if I went back out there. As soon as I paid for my room, I went where I was told. 
By the time I made it to my room, I collapsed on the bed and let my bag fall beside me. But I didn't sleep instantly. My stomach was loud enough to keep me awake. Still, I didn't feel like going back out and trying my luck at finding a pub or restaurant. A soaking wasn't worth a halfway decent burger, and I'd pack something anyway. Instead, I reached around in my bag and pulled out a packet of beef jerky. It wasn't much, but it was satisfying enough to keep me from going out. While I ate, focused enough to actually look at the room I was going to be spending the night in, there wasn't really anything special about it. Just a room for one with cream wallpaper, with a black radiator and an old TV opposite me with local channels you probably had to pay extra for. The door back out was on my right, and to my left was the bathroom along with a small desk with some wall sockets, two mugs, some tea bags and milk in small plastic containers and a kettle. The bed itself was slightly uncomfortable, and the covers could have been thicker, but it didn't matter much to me. What was a little more uncomfortable was the smell. The best way I could think to describe it was artificial, like some sort of aerosol. I would have opened a window, but at that point, I honestly didn't want to get up for anything. After I finished the packet of jerky, the tiredness finally managed to dominate. I was barely able to get my cycling clothing off before I went to sleep. When I woke up, not only was I rested, but the discomfort was gone. I was still drowsy, but I tried to get up anyway. Once I did, I realized how difficult it really felt to move. But when I did, I realized that I wasn't just stiff, for I was sore, and I had a few red bumps on my legs. When I looked down to the floor, I could see something red and shiny poking out from underneath the bed. So I reached down to see what it was. A can of bug spray, left by whoever was in the room before me, no doubt, that the staff forgot to clean up. Looking back at my legs, I realized that the place must have had an insect problem. Between the spray and the bite, it was easy to tell that they had bed bugs or something. I felt disgusted that I had to stay in a place like this, but I guess it made sense. Being bees in the middle of nowhere didn't have to worry much about quality control. There was something else though, something that I felt like I had forgot. I put it in the back of my mind, had a shower, and I went for breakfast. Nothing spectacular. But I only got halfway through, the thought of those insects crawling over me and sinking their teeth into my body made me lose my appetite. I decided to look around town before I took off. I thought back to whatever it was that got away from me that morning, while I checked to see if there was anything interesting or historical. I remembered an attic one I didn't recognize. It was pretty crowded, full of boxes with junk inside of them. I went to the window staring down. The ground, street, everything was covered in a sheet of snow. There were people down there too, on the street, in the road and on the front porch. They were all pale looking, and it was difficult to tell from where I was, but it looked like they each had the same face. An anxious feeling had swept over me, and I looked back to the boxes. Not knowing why, I just knew I didn't want to stay in the attic. 
Luckily, there was a stairway. The exit was covered in a thin veil, but it was open. I walked towards it, but didn't remember anything else before I woke up. My satisfaction at remembering my dream was diminished when I realized I was exhausted. Even though I thought I got a full rest, my legs ached and begged me for a break. With no real choice, I found the nearest bench and I sat down. When I felt ready to get back up again, I checked my watch. Two hours had passed. That shot me to my feet, which my legs didn't like. I began to think that maybe I had pushed myself too hard the day before, and had become clear that my body still wasn't ready for another day of cycling. That night, I ate an actual meal at an actual pub, before heading back to Gossamer's and staying another night. My dream was much clearer this time. I was in a hallway. My body moved with no real weight to it, and it felt like I was swimming. The walls were a mixture of gray and white, while it became difficult to take another step when my foot landed on the white portions. At the end of the hallway were several doors. The first one I tried, the middle one, opened with ease. Like the hallway, it was a large room. There was a desk, a chair, a coffee table, and a skylight looking up at an incredibly dull sky. The chairs and curtains looked like they hadn't been moved for years. I took a step towards the desk, feeling my legs catch and pull apart something. But in that moment, all that felt important was moving towards the desk. When you dream, sometimes you go somewhere or do something for no real reason, other than a weird sense that you have to. All of a sudden, my strange obligation turned into unease. The unease was emotional, but also physical despite it being a dream. Like a sudden stomach pain. When I realized I could feel, I noticed them crawling on me. Their bodies were an exotic blue, while I could see the tips of their legs and fangs were black. They had patterns on their backs that looked like some sort of spiral or not. I thought they were spiders, but they didn't look like any house spider that I had ever seen. While my movements were slow, they were just as fast as any spider in the waking world. They bit my arm and the more I shook, I remember the pain rushing up my limbs. I felt like I wanted to scream, and that was when I woke up. It was difficult to move my arms and legs, and they felt even stiffer than before, to the point where even the covers felt heavy. And even when I managed to climb out of bed, I got rewarded with nothing but pain. I twitched for a moment, and I thought they were still on me, and then I noticed that there was a noise going through my room, and I looked to the nightstand. In the shock of it all, I had forgot that I had set an alarm extra early. I looked outside to see the dawn of the next day. I looked down at my body, and saw the bites on both my arms and legs. The ones on my legs were a different color now. They looked like the same color as the sky, but slightly darker, as if the skin had bruised. But when I touched it, it didn't feel bruised, just cold. Even awake, I stayed in bed for a few more hours. Metaphorically, physically, 
I still felt pretty stiff. It was difficult to explain, and it still is. The best I can offer is that the place just makes you lethargic, but I couldn't tell you how. My arms and legs had red blotches all over them, so I decided the first thing I wanted to do was get some rash cream. After that, a taxi. Screw saving money. I didn't want to spend another night with bedbugs. After a bit of walking around, I found the local chemist a few blocks away. It took me longer than I would like to admit. Everything in this town was utterly boring. There were no landmarks. What businesses were in the town had such mundane names that they didn't stick. The only barely memorable thing about it was Gossamer's. The woman at the counter looked bored, but when I opened the door she greeted me with a smile. I asked for some creams for the bites, and she gave me this look, asking if they were from a spider. When I answered yes, she directed me to a shelf by the window. She asked if I was staying at the bed and breakfast place, and I said yes, but from how she looked it seemed like she already knew the answer. In a town this small, everyone knows everyone so I figured it probably wasn't difficult to spot a tourist, especially since this was the type of place that got so few of them. In frustration, she commented that they needed to sort themselves out. It was obvious that the place was infested with something or another, but they got so many few tourists that no one really paid attention to it, and it was the only real place to stay if you were stopping by. She continued to talk while I nodded along, content to let her do whatever gossip she needed to get out of her system while I paid for my skin cream. I didn't blame her for going on, with how dull this place was. Afterwards, I called a taxi service to ask them to pick me up. They said that they would be able to take me to the next town over, but they could only do it tomorrow morning. After buying some more bug spray, I went back to Gossamer's with a sigh. Shrill, if I couldn't get out of here by today, I was at least going to get a different room. I went to the receptionist to ask if I could move to a different room. He looked at me strangely before saying that he would check. After a moment, he confirmed that they did have a room available for me. Immediately after entering, I sprayed the whole room down. I'm pretty sure I used half the can, but it didn't matter. That night, I had another dream. This time, however, I wasn't in a house. Wherever I looked, I saw a lawn faded in a dull white, kind of like snow. Moving through was difficult, but not impossible. Ahead of me, there were people and animals covered in that same snow, so covered that they were frozen in place. It wasn't just them, but animals too, all frozen in the same places. When I squinted, I could see animals frozen, and some of the people had strange shapes. Another thing I noticed was that the snow around them was a lot less dull than where I stood. I walked towards them, wanting to look closer. I remember feeling heavier the closer that I got, my body starting to rock more. I started to see some of them making strange shapes with their bodies. When I got closer, the snow was lighter, but it also got more difficult for me to move. Closer than any of the people, there is a bench, 
with how heavy I had felt. And how heavy I had been over these last few days, it looked so attractive, even if it were a simple park bench. In fact, there was something about this bench that made it even more attractive than the bed I was sleeping on in the real world. I just wanted to get rid of that heaviness that hadn't gone away, and was now following me into my dreams. When the bench was just ahead, I took another step, but I fell and tripped over something, falling straight onto the bench. When moved to sit upright, I sat down on that bench. There was an odd sense of relief. I felt like it would be alright, and that the heaviness would fade away. For a moment, it was fine, but ironically, I found it difficult to sit still a few seconds later. When my legs fidgeted, I figured it was already happening. When I looked down, I could see spiders crawling up from the snow, except I realized it wasn't snow. It was a thick webbing. The fidgeting turned to itching, which then turned to a strong irritation. I shook my legs and swatted them away with my hands, but they didn't stop coming, climbing up the bench to get me. I ran, but the heavy feeling came back to me. I moved past the frozen bodies, engulfed in web and hung up like puppets. Some were human. Some had shapes and structures that didn't look like anything that belonged on the planet. If you've ever tried to run in a dream and found yourself stuck in slow motion, it was similar to that. But the spiders didn't follow those same rules. They kept coming out of the webbing all around me and biting down like they had been waiting until I was completely surrounded. The more that I kicked and panicked, the more of them crawled to the surface. As far as I could see, no matter where I looked, they were there. Hundreds and thousands of them. I heard the alarm when I woke up. I had set it to be as loud as possible, wanting to make sure that I woke up. It was hurting my ear a little, so I tried to switch it off but I realized I couldn't move. My body was completely stiff, and the only sound in the room was my own breathing. I sighed and was about to lean my head back into the pillow when I thought I saw something, a small lump underneath the covers. Now that I realized, I could see a lot of them. And then they started to move. I could feel them crawling all over me, and my body felt more sore than ever, and the pain was getting worse. Everything hurt and it didn't stop. The pain first rushed up my legs and then my fingers. I managed a few weak kicks while that pain made its way in my body towards my neck. With everything I had, I rolled off the bed and fell on the floor. The pain stopped in my body, and I realized I was wheezing, but I felt like I could move again if only slightly. When I looked over to the open covers, whatever was there had vanished. I bit the bullet and I called a taxi, cutting my cycling holiday short. I refused to go back to that B&B, &B, but the more I waited, the more pain I felt. I looked at the bed a few times while I was waiting, part of me convincing myself just to lie back down and relax while the taxi got here knowing I would feel better if I would just lie down. But no matter how cold or uncomfortable I was, I managed to wait out the urges. 
I was ashamed just to come back like that, but my parents never held it against me. I went to the doctors to inspect the bites on my body. They had been identified as spider bites, but they were unable to identify what kind. When they all turned that lightly bruised color, I began to shiver, needing constant heat. Eventually, though, I did get better, but I haven't slept the same since. I get wary of places I find it too comfortable, and I set more alarms. Later, I found out Gossamer shut down. The town that it was based in has no mention of it, and they treat it like it never existed. I don't sleep as much now, and if I've started scratching a lot more. Recently, I had another dream following a good night's sleep. Two things I don't get often anymore. The dream itself, I barely remember. But after I woke up, I felt something move underneath the covers and threw them off. My imagination, but out of paranoia, I checked my arms. There were small cuts along them, with a strange liquid oozing out, mixing with the blood. They felt sore and cold.